Hey, this is Scott Norton, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frogs. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. The young boy Joshua Smith here solo this week. On today's show, I'll be discussing the new beginning in Sapporo, Nights 1 and 2, previewing NJPW's 52nd anniversary event, and announcing and the announcement of the New Japan Cup and covering all the latest news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Please support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or Keeping It Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the network's podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Be sure to check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are solo. Um, I am in a darkened room podcasting because nobody has to see me and I don't have to talk to Jeremy. So um, I, I kind of wanted to just set the mood and mirror the darkened state uh, of New Japan that we're going through right now. Um, one thing I also wanted to point out is that Jeremy picked a pretty inopportune time to leave the show. I mean, um, leaving me to man the helm, if it was like a couple road twos or like a, a Fantastic Mania Night 4, I would get it. But he let me do the big new beginning shows by myself. So uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, um, this is a co-hosted podcast, my better half, Jeremy is on a some sort of retreat. I forget. He told me what it was, but I, I don't listen enough. So um, he will be back next week, and we will be doing our full preview and breakdown of the New Japan Cup. I believe uh, if he's not too depressed about the product, um, Chris Samso will also be joining us for that show. Uh, but in the meantime, um, we will be uh, breaking down the events that just transpired with New Beginning and Sapporo. Before I get to that, I did want to discuss a couple talking points. And uh, you're going to have to forgive me if you hear some noise in the background. Um, let me get my handy-dandy notes here. So I had a pretty enlightening conversation last week with a listener of the show. I had put out uh, the, the bat signal and basically... Um, talked about Bushi Road's recent decline uh, in their stock, the stock drop that took place. And I asked if there was anybody that was entrenched in the financial scene in Japan, any stockholders, anybody that happened to have a good handle on what's going on, 
with uh, Bushi Road stock and with the um, the the market over there in Japan. Um, essentially, tell me what what's the deal? What's going on? And um, I'm not gonna go too deep into the weeds here. Um, try to keep it surface level for you guys. But I did have an enlightening conversation with one of our listeners. Um, I didn't know if they wanted me to uh, put their public name out there, so I'm gonna refrain from doing that for the time being. Um, but basically, they pretty much um, painted a picture of um, the reason that the yen is down in in Japan. It's kind of relative to their own markets and relative to their own policies in Japan. Um, so essentially, when COVID happened, um, the Japan and and forgive me, I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. Um, the country of Japan had tried a new monetary policy where they were making their interest rates as low as possible to benefit the general public, so that it would then in turn um, kind of incentivize their markets to be a little bit more uh, liberal with with spending and with borrowing, things like that. And this is in um, opposition to the policies of other countries. So, you know, um, they were already kind of at a disadvantage in that standpoint. Then you turn around, pandemic hits, all the world markets get thrown into, you know, awry. And you see countries like, you know, the United States and Europe and different markets where they're raising their their um, borrowing rates, where it costs a lot more for your average individual or business to take a loan and to borrow. Whereas um, Japan has still tried to maintain their policy of keeping interest rates extremely low. And what that's actually done is it's actually benefited their um individual markets with the stocks and and you know trading and everything like that and it's actually kept that very very healthy so like um their stock markets are going through a boom period and business is doing really well but when you um put it on more of like a world market stage and you compare their interest rate which is very low to rising interest rates in other country that's where you get that differential of why the yen is undervalued or you know worth less than other uh you know um currencies especially like the u.s dollar the other issue in the midst of all this and this is kind of going back to the last quarter um as i mentioned the stock markets are doing really really well and most companies are kind of going through a growth period and a boom period in japan but Bushi Road has been down over the last quarter, and this isn't the first time that they've had a a, a quarter where they've been at a loss. And um, not going to go too deep into all of their business, um, but as I mentioned last week, Bushi Road is is a company that's comprised of a lot of different uh, market or like a, a bunch of different um, sectors, like they. They have trading card games, they do video games, they have live entertainment, they have sports. They do a lot of different things other than just professional wrestling. Um, And professional wrestling probably makes up, I don't know, about 15% of their market capitalization. So it it is a a large chunk of their business, but it's not the largest chunk. And um, I guess the last point I want to make on all this, because there there is a lot more I could get into and... um, you know, as time goes on, I mean, this show, we're never going to be mistaken as um, WrestleNomics or anything of that nature. 
But um, w- w- the listener that I spoke to was gracious enough to send me some of the um, the last uh, earnings reports and, and um, uh, infographics that were sent over by the company to stockholders uh, at the end of last quarter. So um, I'll try and keep in contact and continue to track what's going on with Bushy Road. But essentially, the, the two big reasons why they were at a loss last quarter have to do with, number one, they've had a string of um, video games that were um, flops, namely not console games, but um, mobile games. They put a lot of money into their mobile games uh, efforts, and they just had a bunch of, of flops. And that has cost them a ton of money. At this point in time, what they've pretty much told shareholders or what I've gathered is that they understand that this is um, not beneficial to them. They're they're actually going to um, stop doing the mobile games. They're going to move more towards console games and kind of just eat that loss and move away from that um, type of business. Um, in terms of professional wrestling, when it comes to like stardom in New Japan, this past quarter they did suffer losses. Both um, both groups did, um, so they weren't profitable over the period. But what they were able to kind of tell uh, shareholders essentially is that you know that October to December period is a down period just business wise for New Japan, aka you know World Tag League is boring. And um, it's no surprise we covered it and talked about how houses were down even relative for for New Japan over that time frame, and um, you know so they're but they're they are they pretty much told their shareholders that they're projecting to do have a, a better business overall come Q1 because of you know um, uh, Wrestle Kingdom and the New Beginning Tour and Fantastic Mania and now we're going into New Japan Cup and so on and so forth. So that this is like one of their best quarters. So they anticipate business to pick up on the stardom side of things. And um, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with that because I'm not uh, super knowledgeable on stardom, but if you've been following what's taken place with Rossi's ousting of the company and all of the kind of issues with management and the booking committee and various different stars being injured and then stars leaving and, and all that stuff. Um, they have continued to have uh, issues and um, a lot of it basically falls down to mismanagement. Um, Bushi Road did sort of make Rossi, or at least my understanding is they uh, essentially kind of painted the picture that Rossi uh, due to his mismanagement, that was the reason why profits were down for the last quarter but um truth be told i don't know how they're going to write the ship in terms of stardom's business and again i'm not the most knowledgeable there's uh you know listen definitely to one nation radio with uh rich ladd and james boyd They, they can give you a lot more comprehensive coverage of what's going on with the current situation with stardom but um it it's not from a financial standpoint the the long and short of it is that it's not great what's going on with Bushi Road and their stock, especially in light of the fact that the overall market is doing well and they're taking losses. They are making um, steps to rectify this and, and fix things. But, um, you know, again, not everything that has to do with their stock is, uh, you know, directly tied to their wrestling business. It's about, you know, again, like I said, 15% of their overall market um capitalization for the company but 
that that's pretty much what I've gathered. And there's probably a lot more I could say about that, a lot more details. Hopefully this is a, a you know beneficial to some listeners that are interested and um, kind of want more information and details about that. So I'll try my best to keep up a little bit more with the ongoings of Bushi Road in New Japan. Um, but let's jump into the new beginning. So uh, this past weekend, we had two nights of new beginning action as the two big Sapporo shows from Hokkaido um, from the Prefectural Sports Center Arena on February 23rd and February 24th. So back-to-back nights here. On night one, they had a uh, reported attendance of 3,231. Um, they had a much better attendance on night two, 5,355. So I'm assuming that, um, you know, that's pretty much an indication that um, the the big stars that are draws on the domestic Japanese side, like Naito and, you know, Sonata, um, Shingo, Hiromu, Suji, Yumura, that uh, kind of pushed things a lot better. Um, for their business, I'm assuming, as opposed to unknown commodities like a, a Matt Riddle or a Nick Nemeth, for instance. Um, but overall, I mean, not not the greatest houses in the world. Night 2 was much better than Night 1, obviously. And I think in, in um, their heyday, they've been able to get upwards of 8,000 into this building. So um, at the start, of, uh, ju- just a few days prior to the show, we did learn that um, Aaron Hanari was to miss the new beginning in Sapporo both nights due to the head wound that he sustained uh, in that cage match on February 11th in Osaka. So they did have to shift some of the cards around. I don't have the prior um, layout of what had been announced because it doesn't matter at this point. He was off the show. They, they shifted things around, and I'm just going to go over exactly what occurred um, for each night. So we kick off the first night uh, with Frontier Zone Tag Team Action, where we saw the team of Toriyano, Tomoya, and they defeated Shomakato and Tomoaki Hanma, 7 minutes and 10 seconds. And uh, Tomoya is a, I, I don't know a lot about him, but they basically painted a picture that he's an older um, independent wrestling star. Uh, this is his first time, 28 years wrestling. Uh, at the age of 50, he finally uh, made it to the Cerulean Blue Mat, and he's good friends with Toriano. And it was kind of through his, he has a role with the local government um, that kind of in the Hokkaido prefectural um, area. So it was sort of like a, a little bit of a, a make good and a, kind of just a nice thing to, you know, they've done these frontier zone matches where they bring in outside talent, and instead of bringing in like a, a young upstart, they kind of gave this guy a little bit of the gold watch treatment and, uh, you know, let him have his moment uh, both nights. So um, on night one, he teamed against Hanma and Kato. I, I saw a lot of people that really um, were down on this match quite a bit. They, I, I saw a lot of people uh, or heard a lot of reviews where they were talking about how terrible Hanma looked here and, um, you know, stuff with, Tomoya and Shoma Kato. I thought this was fine. In fact, the, these this style of Frontier Zone um, tag team match, it kind of reminds me of the Lionsgate projects that we used to get with uh, Yuji Nagata and all the young lions facing off against like the tradition guys and and you know um, some of, some of the like grimier um, <laughs> um, independent stars that were just kind of out there. So 
seeing a guy like Shoma Kato get an opportunity to work with a, a grizzled vet like Tamoya, I thought that was a good opportunity. Um, this wasn't anything that blew me away, but um, Tamoya did pick up the win with a move called the La Arakita 2005, which was a really, really crazy, slick sort of... Um, I believe it was either a submission or a pin. I can't recall off the top of my head, but it was... Uh, I Yeah, it was like a roll-through into like a, a really strange submission and uh, very, very slick, but um, not the greatest match in the world. But it, again, this is just a... It's a pre-show Frontier Zone kickoff match, and I think it was a good learning experience for Shoma Kato. Um, so we get into the actual official show. Um, kicking off the night, the first uh, match on the proper main show, we had singles action as Zack Sabre Jr. Uh, defeated Yuji Nagata 7 minutes and 56 seconds with the cross arm breaker. And um, this was pretty good um, for opening action. Uh, you know, Zack, we've kind of talked about this where he just recently came off that big victory over uh, Brian Danielson, and Yuji Nagata is a um, a common opponent between the two of them in, in recent terms. Yuji Nagata had gone over to AEW and wrestled uh, Brian Danielson on one of those Saturday night events in preparation for the big Zack Sabre Jr. match. And in turn, um, now... It, we've got Zack Sabre Jr. taking on Yuji Nagata, so kind of a common opponent. Um, Nagata, obviously, um, has seen better days. He's uh, very much past his prime, but even in his um, later stages of his career, someone someone that can still really go. Um, they didn't have like a crazy back-and-forth style match. This was, um, you know, like I said, it was just under eight minutes, but... For what it was, I thought it was very good. I mean, a lot of uh, strikes, a lot of submissions, and, you know, some suplexes for, for effect as well. Um, Nagata got some opportunity to shine and get his arm bar and roll his eyes into the back of, of his head down the stretch and, you know, make it uh, a little bit closer than it had been. But ultimately, this was sort of a showcase for Zack Sabre Jr. He picks up the win here, and he's going on. Um I'm not sure what they're doing with Zach next, but it feels like them having him pick up this win over Yuji Nagata could hypothetically be something to just sort of keep the momentum going in terms of uh, after he got that win over Danielson, he he sort of needs uh, uh, you know a give me opponent so that he can kind of carry that victory and that momentum into the uh, next month's New Japan Cup. So um, and. <laughs> if 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 someone had told me I would have thought this prior to watching this show, I would have been shocked. But even though I like Yuji Nagata and I'm I'm a big fan of his and Zack Saber Juniors, I did not anticipate them being on the opening of the show to be the best men's offering of the evening. But that's exactly what this was. I mean. Uh, again, it was an eight-minute match. I wouldn't probably rate this super highly. Um, you know, I think Cage Match has it sitting at 5.84. <laughs> so just around, you know, just around three stars, and that's probably what I would give it. But um, that's going to, you know, me saying that to start things off isn't necessarily the the 
best foundation for a great show, which this absolutely was not. But if there was one men's match, I'd say go out of your way and check out if you're interested. It'd be Zack Sabre and Yuji Nagata. Um, the second match of the night, we had six-man tag team action. We had the team of House of Torture, Ren Narita, Yujiro Takahashi, and Yoshinabu Kanemaru. Uh, they defeated the team of Oleg Bolton, Ryazuki Taguchi, and Togi Makabe. Seven minutes and 15 seconds. Ren Narita picked up the victory here with the double cross, which is his... You know, sit out face buster, otherwise known as the X Factor. Um, really just your typical um, House of Torture match. A lot of shenanigans. Um, you know, the one cool thing in this, uh, and keep in mind, guys, I've got two nights of coverage here. So there's a lot to remember with a lot of matches. So I may miss a few things here. But, um, you know, we did get Oleg Bolton doing his, uh, his big uh, spot where he gets the person in the gut wretch and, you know, shimmies them back and forth from side to side over and over again, which was pretty awesome. But um, at the end of the match, essentially, we ended up uh, with Togi Makabe uh, in against Renarita. Uh, Renarita got the uh, metal, uh, the metal push-up bar, I guess, reinforced, and he tried to hit Togi Makabe with it, but Togi uh, avoided it. Um, he was able to kind of lay out Renderita. He went to the top rope and was going for the King Kong knee drop, but at that moment, Kanemaru sprayed alcohol in his eyes. Uh, Narita hit him with the push-up bar and then hit him with the X-Factor after that to uh, pick up the win here. This wasn't a great match. Um, I've always been a fan <laughs> of guys being um, smart enough. You know, this is what we uh, like to call Triple H-ism, where... You know, you could have beaten the guy by just hitting them with the foreign object and then getting the one, two, three for the cheap heat. But instead, <laughs> Ren Narita decided to hit his finish afterwards. And the reason that Triple H used to always do that back in the day, he'd hit the guy with the sledgehammer and then do the pedigree, is because when they play it back for the uh, for the video packages, all you see is him hitting the pedigree. You don't ever see him hit using the uh, the foreign object. So I don't know if there was that much forethought uh, going into this from Renarita, but he was sure to hit him with his uh, his double cross before he uh, finished the match there. So House of Torture picks up the win. Um, we move on to the third match of the night, which was the second-to-last match for Kazushika Okada as he teamed up with his Chaos Brethren, um, him, Yo, Tomohiro Ishii, and Yoshihashi, and they were accompanied by Toriyano and Hiroki Goto. They defeated the United Empire team of Great Okan, Jeff Cobb, Francesco Akira, and Callum Newman at 10 minutes and 58 seconds. Uh, and as a surprise to nobody, uh, Kazushiko Okada picks up the win with the Rainmaker over Callum Newman um, just under 11 minutes. And this was a good match. Um, I thought it was a very, like, in terms of the tag team matches on the undercard, very enjoyable. Um, both of these teams work really, really well uh, with one another. And, you know, they were kind of talking um, on commentary throughout the match about the, the status of both of these teams where how they may be at a crossroads. You know, Okada has is on his way out from the company. What's going on with Chaos? What's going to be the status of them? And then the same thing with United Empire. 
with the exit of Will Ospreay from the company. Um, they did talk about, and I'll bring this up at the end of the show, but Will Ospreay did have a going away match in Red Pro where he lost to Michael Oku last weekend. And, um, you know, Chris Charlton kind of attributed it to the 64-minute cage match in NJPW. Softening him up might have created that opening for Michael Oku to pick up the win and sort of implying that, you know, this United Empire team is still coming off of a pretty physical war, um, you know, entering this match. And so, um, unfortunately, even though the match was good, we didn't, and we got a lot of great action. All these guys, they're very familiar with one another. They worked together a lot and, and the match was good. I mean, this was a, a fine, fun paced, you know, 11 minute, uh, multi-man tag team match. And it was, it, it was good for what it was. The only thing is we didn't really get any sort of indication of the status of either team the most interesting thing that was going on in the match was there did seem to be like a little quasi sub angle going on between okada and uh the great okan okan wasn't showing okada any um respect and you know slapped him in the face pretty pretty hard pretty stiff and um all throughout the match seemed pretty um intent on taking it to okada but Ultimately, like I mentioned, Okada hits the dropkick on Newman, gets the Rainmaker clothesline for the pin. Fun match. And then um, at the end of the match, Yano and Goto, they hop over the guardrail. All six members of Chaos are in the ring together. They're taking photos. And while this is going on, Great Okan is still at ringside. The rest of United Empire have gone to the back, and he's holding the KOPW title above his head. So he's just standing there with, like, kind of... I don't know, trying to say like the champ is here or something. Um, and, you know, we've we've seen Ocon in the backstage comments bring up how the KOPW, there were jokes about how it was Kazushka Okada pro wrestling because it was his idea to institute the the gimmick from the first place from, from Go back during the pandemic era, even though he never won the title. And um, kind of wondering, like, Great Ocon sort of seemed like he was trying to work himself into some sort of angle for a few weeks there with uh, Okada on his way out. Um, that never really came to fruition. And then we get this moment where he's standing outside of the ring at the, uh, you know, on the, uh, the walkway holding the belt over his head and Okada's, you know, raising his hands with his team. They're all hugging, saying goodbye, doing their bows. And then as they're exiting, Okada just walks right by Okan, completely ignores him and you know charlton says wow what a show of disrespect but that's really all all that happened here that's all this was it was kind of um i don't know bizarre i was wondering like you know the guy's on his way out and you know we're, we're doing the goodbyes i was sort of expecting or hoping for and even at this point i was like well maybe this is leading to something the next night that we can kind of point to as a turning point for one or both of these groups. But, um, you know, spoiler alert, that doesn't seem to be the case. So uh, it, it was kind of strange because this didn't really seem to lead to anything. And, and in New Japan, if you're a long-term fan, um, you know, you hear a lot about uh, Gato and him doing this long-form storytelling and, you know, dropping breadcrumbs, stuff that, you know, he'll hint it now and it might pay off later. And maybe that's what they're doing here. 
but typically they try not to do some they try not to hit at things that they can't deliver on entirely you know stuff that just could never happen and with okada leaving i mean i'm sure he'll be back but i i don't know i don't know if i see the company like planning to you know like let's say at forbidden door do him and okan or something like that so this was just kind of weird i don't know what the impetus was if this was company directive or uh you know okan just doing his own thing it was just really strange but uh <laughs> um i guess that was an angle we move on to the next match of the night the fourth match of the main uh card and we had the team of lij bushi hiromu uh, Shingo, Naito, and Suji, they defeated um, all five members of Just Five Guys, Doki, Sonata, Taichi, Taka, and Yuya Uemura, 10 minutes and 7 seconds. And the match finished here when um, Shingo Takagi got a pumping bomber victory over Taka Michinoku, 10 minutes and 7 seconds. And um, a fine undercard tag match I would probably rate it slightly below the previous eight-man tag team match, but um, this was good for what it was nonetheless. Uh, continuing to build on um, and kind of preview the, the the following night's major lineup of matches as all five members of each team would be facing off against one another in singles matches. Um, you know, we had all, all ten of these guys fighting at the bell. Um a lot of heat just kind of going back and forth ultimately at the end here though um it kind of came down to shingo and uh, uh i believe taka and shingo was able to hit the pumping bomber picks up the near fall um at that point bushi hit a drive a dive through the ropes to the floor shingo hit a second pumping bomber to taka and picked up the win uh, while this was going on outside of the ring yuya uemura and yotasuji um, who would be facing off the next evening in a hair versus hair match. Um, they were kind of just, they were like the, the main thing in the match that kind of had juice to it throughout this match. Um, throughout the rest of the match, it kind of felt like the, the crowd was not that reactive to the rest of the combatants and the feud in general. So you know, um, we've, we've, we've heard some people kind of be a bit, um, you know, kind of critical that they've gone back to this feud for a second month in a row. Um, and I don't know if maybe it was that we've seen a lot of these matches between these individuals over the past few months over and over again, or maybe these guys were just taking it a little bit easy, but the match was fine. It wasn't necessarily up to the standard of some of the matches I've seen from them in the past, but you know, um, a breezy little preview tag team match for, for the following evening. And then from there, we moved into the bulk of the actual main card. So the second half, and we start off with singles action as the IWGP women's title was on the line. The champion, Mayu Iwatani, she defeated her challenger, Mina Shirakawa, 12 minutes and 28 seconds. Um, and she picked up the, the victory here with a two-step dragon suplex at 12 minutes and 28 seconds. And that is the fourth defense of Mayu Iwatani in this current title reign. And this match was really good, honestly. Um, as I said earlier in, in the episode, the opener 
between Nagata and Zack Sabre Jr., in my opinion, was probably the best men's offering of the evening. But make no mistake about it, the best match of the evening was Mayu versus Mina. And um, just going over 12 minutes, I do feel like if there was a crowd that was a bit more invested in uh, these two competitors or familiar with their story or familiar with their work, um, or if they'd even given them a bit more time, we could have been on our way to an even greater match. But for what this was, it was very hard-hitting, very emotional, very fast-paced, and um, very entertaining. Um, I've never seen Mina Shirakawa wrestle before. Um, I made a joke last week about her being my favorite Joshi because she is undeniably, um, you know, one of the better looking gals on the stardom roster. But um, I'd kind of heard rumors that her work wasn't maybe up to snuff in the past. Obviously, everybody knows Mayu Iwatani as being one of, if not the best, um, you know, stardom original or one of the daughters of stardom and kind of the flagship, the, the, the woman that carries that brand at this current time. And she was fantastic as she always is but uh i felt like her and mina had a really really good match here and i was very impressed with what i saw from mina shirakawa we got a lot of high flying action dragon suplexes frog splashes um you know i'll be the first to admit if you're listening um often i offer a lot of color to my uh breakdown on these reviews i'm not usually the one that gives the the play-by-play if you will about the ongoings of the match specifically unless there's something that stuck out to me um jeremy's a bit better at kind of take and maybe if i took more notes (laughs) but um jeremy's usually the one that kind of tells exactly what took place in the match but uh um i do remember mayu ended up uh hitting a tombstone pile driver and a buzzsaw kick to the head that was really nasty um there was a top rope missile drop kick there was a lot of i mean double double stomps to the chest uh top rope moonstall moonsault like there was some great stuff here and mina just kept um kicking out of stuff really showing her toughness and then um at the end here uh mina trapped both arms of mayu and got a very close near fall but ultimately mayu hits a dragon suplex for believable near fall and then hits another dragon suplex with high bridge for the pin. Great match. I went three and a half here, which is a very, very good match. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to see them continue to bring uh, these women into New Japan um, on a more regular basis, especially with these title matches. Um, in the backstage comments, um, that was something that Mayu really said was that she doesn't just want them to be featured as something to add a little bit more variety, but they, they want to build up stardom and kind of uh, bridge the gap between these two fan bases and maybe even potentially have new Japan stars come to stardom eventually. So um, really good stuff there. The next match of the night, I don't have as many glowing things to say about it. Uh, we had the IWGP junior heavyweight title on the line as the champion El Desperado he was defeated by his challenger show at 16 minutes and 13 seconds. Show picks up the win by count out. <laughs> and he is the new IWGP junior heavyweight champion. 
Now, I got to say, I've been watching New Japan for quite a while. And I know that there's a lot of people that have a lot of crazy hot takes. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's people listening that were, this was the start of their frustration with this show. And maybe they're tuning in, expecting me to just light this company afire and go off and, and have all these hot takes and freak out. And if I did do that, it would be justified. And if you feel that way, you're definitely justified. Um, but the sad thing about it is I'm starting to feel um, a bit more like kind of just dismay and apathy, you know? And I, like I said, I've been watching New Japan for a long time. And when I got done with this show, I felt like I had seen literally an all-time bad New Japan show. And, you know, I've watched shows from the Dark Ages. <laughs> um, I can't recall too many major New Japan pay-per-view level shows that I've watched in the past decade that were this um, mind-boggling, this weird, and um, kind of just depressing. So... Uh, yeah, we had the match here, and one of the um, one of the stipulations had been that if Desperado defeated Show, Show would have to leave the House of Torture and join Desperado in Strong Style. And that was like the first kind of weird stipulation thing, and they didn't play it up too much. Um, like they didn't announce that, and they, it wasn't on like the match graphics, but it was clearly part of the story, something that they had been building. And, um, you know, they have the match and it's, it's a show house of torture match. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, cheating and, and ref bumps and lights going out and interference and all that stuff. And this is getting really, really old. And I know we complain about it all the time. Um, but I think one of the, the terrible things about it is you've got, uh, this House of Torture match, and then another House of Torture match right after it, plus you had one earlier on the show. So you've got three House of Torture matches where they're all doing the same gimmick. They're all doing the same stuff. And if wrestling is supposed to be like, I understand, like it, it can't be like pure. This isn't, we're not watching like, you know, fighting network rings. We're not watching uh, joint promotions from 1979. I get it. You know, it, it's not a pure sport promotion, but it is supposed to be somewhat of a variety show and you are supposed to have, um, if you go this route and you decide to incorporate these sorts of things into your program, into your show, you don't want to inundate the crowd with this to the point to where it just becomes insufferable. And we've seen that throughout wrestling history. I mean, Vince Russo is like the poster boy for it. And, um, various times in this, uh, company's history, they've, done that i i do think it's something that gato has shown a proclivity for and hasn't um always been taking a task for it and man on this show like having to sit through three house of torture matches that were all pretty prominent and they're all doing the same shit uh it, it just really really sucks and so you know we we, we get kanemaru running out Taguchi running out and you know to even things up and show and desperado brawling and just all this cheating but ultimately what ends up happening is they're on the outside and keep in mind we're already like 14 15 minutes into the match so it's not like 
you know, as I said, this this ended in countout. And if you didn't know countout, uh, countout victories in Japan, they there is no um, championships uh, advantage like there is in the states. Like if you lose by countout, you lose the title, and it it's a very unsatisfactory finish. They don't they don't do this a lot, uh, hardly if ever. I mean, the most prominent example I can think of is when um Anoki lost the NWF title to Stan Hansen in like 80 or 81 um or another example would be when Hulk Hogan um beat Antonio Anoki in the 1983 uh IWGP League finals to to win the inaugural the inaugural uh IWGP title and he you know for a lot of and it, it's essentially the same finish in both of those matches where Hanson slash Hogan hit a running lariat to um, a prone Inoki who's on the um, on the apron. He gets knocked out, falls to the outside, and then can't make it in. So pretty much the same finish. One's more famous than the other, but uh, it, it's just really rare. I mean, and that was a more emphatic victory than what this is. The way that this ended, um, we're 15 minutes into it. Uh, Desperado hits up. Pile driver tombstone um, on the outside. Uh, oh no, no, I'm sorry. He did that on the inside, and he gets a near fall, but the ref gets bumped. Show hits a low blow uppercut. They roll to the floor. Um, Show hit an unprotected chair shot to the head of Desperado, um, which I don't know. Like that's one of those things where they they kind of fell out of vogue in wrestling, but they're starting to do that a bit more. But then again, these chairs that they're using are not steel. Like they're kind of like uh, the particle board uh, with foam. But I, I don't know. Uh, it's not, it's not for me to say necessarily. But I don't know if I necessarily love that. Um, anyways, uh, Desperado ends up hitting a chair shot onto a chair and shows head at 16 minutes. And while they're out there, the ref is counting and he's getting pretty close to the 20 count. Looks like Desperado is going to be the one that gets inside the ring. Um, and they're both trying to get in, but while, um, while they're both crawling and trying to get in and the referee is paying attention to show Ren Narita comes out of nowhere and applies a sleeper hold to Desperado outside of the view of the referee. Um, and then, you know, the referee doesn't see it. Ren Narita rolls back underneath the ring show makes it into the ring. Desperado does not. And we get the, the count out victory and the title changes hands and, show us the new champion so uh literally one of the absolute worst like just dog shit title switches that i've seen in years and keep in mind one of the the big talking points with this match was that the winner was going to go on to the anniversary show and face the winner of the next night's main event uh where sonata naito face off and a lot of people had kind of anticipated that we were getting desperado versus most likely naito and with naito most likely retaining both the show and desperado match were first time encounters but this current version of show um just sucks you know there's no getting around it the matches suck there's not very there's little to no redeeming value in in his matches whatsoever and you know with this with this booking decision they've effectively moved the house of torture back into the main event scene, albeit even if it's just for one night, we're going to have to sit through another house. Of t- well, many of you won't like there. I, I know people that are like just 
starting to tune out from this. And this is the kind of thing that that does make people tune out from watching the the product. Um, <laughs> and you have to wonder, like you're looking back and you're like, damn, like a couple months ago, Hiromu was the champion. And had he retained right now, we might be on our way to Hiromu versus Naito, the dream match that people have been wanting that we got robbed of pre-pandemic now that didn't happen and then it's like okay well despy versus naito maybe that's not my personal cup of tea but i know a lot of people that'd be excited to see that match and that's on paper just so much better than than the idea of show (laughs) and for this guy to have won his very first njpw singles title in this manner i understand it it's heat you're not supposed to like it but there's also a, a point to where you're just like, ugh, this fucking sucks. And in the midst of all the other things that are going on in the company, negative, both kayfabe and shoot, uh, I just, I don't know. This was the first big booking decision of the night where I was like, what the fuck are we doing? Plus the match um, just, you know, it, it sucked. Um, I, the finish didn't help anything. It, this was uh, easily the lowest rated match of the night um, when it came to singles matches. Uh Cage match has it sitting at a 3.19, so, you know, that should tell you something. Uh, We move on to the next match. So we had the never open weight title on the line as the champion, Evil, was defending against the challenger, Shota Umino. And at 15 minutes, 45 seconds, Evil retains the never open weight title with the everything is evil. And man, again, you like, I just have to sit here and wonder, like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> so, Shota gets attacked from behind um, at the beginning of the match. Um, they're brawling all over the floor, him and Evil. Um, it's This isn't necessarily a great match, again, without giving you a, a full play uh, by play of everything that occurred here. It's another House of Torture special. Ref bumps, you know, cheating, low blows, uh, you know, outside interference, distractions, every single thing that you can think of. Like, all this stuff is happening here. Um, At one point, uh, Shota Umino ends up uh, applying the STF to Evil, and Yujiro rings the bell, so Shota releases the hold. He thinks he's won the title because, I don't know, stingism you know a dumb baby face like obviously he's been wrestling for years and years now and he doesn't know to not release the hold until the referee actually like comes over and declares him the winner but whatever um <laughs> yeah i mean you had yujiro you had togo doing all their st- their shit ref bumps um you know at one point chris charlton was just like berating the referee for being grossly incompetent but it's like dude they make the referees look fucking stupid at this point and um you know one of the 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 big talking points going into the match was the idea that you know okada's on his way out shota umino has been declaring himself like the new ace of the company which is all well and good but i kind of brought up the point last week where i was like you know umino going for the never title um, third from the top on the first night of New Beginning doesn't exactly scream ace to me. Uh, 
So at the same time, I was anticipating, I didn't think the, the junior title would, would switch hands, but I really thought Umino would pick up the victory here. If for no other reason, just something to make us feel good at this trying time. Um, you know, like, like it's always, uh, funny and still it's always sunny in Philadelphia. They say like, can I offer you an egg in this trying time? Like, like can I offer you show to Umino in this trying time? It's like, I guess so. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, we, we get referee bumps, everything like that. So, um, down the stretch, um, Shota Umino is doing everything in his power to avoid all the major offensive evil. He ends up hitting a dragon suplex for a near fall, near fall on evil. And he avoids and everything is evil. And he hits a stunner for a near fall and he hits a hidden blade. And so at this point I'm like, Oh my God, is he going to lose? Cause he's starting to like avoid all the finishes and he's, he keeps getting near falls. And I'm like, it just, feels like he might be on his way to losing um and then evil hits a clothesline and the darkness falls for he gets the near fall and then he immediately hits the everything is evil for the one two three and i'm like are we fucking serious (laughs) like are we serious right now like you know there's all this talk about the young generation and trying to build stars and and build people up and you know you have this this thing with Shota Umino, like he's been around for over a year now, hasn't had his first singles title win. And it seemed like they teed him up and geared him up for, for evil and he's losing. Um, which like, I get it. Like, you know, not every story has to be to your liking. And I, I can't even claim to say like, I do like Shota Umino, but I can't claim to say like, he's my guy when it comes to the, the young stars. But I just don't see the sense here of the benefit of this. You know what I mean? Um, anyways, evil picks up the the victory with his spray painted black never title. And I don't even know why, like I, I, I don't see the benefit here. I don't know how this prepares Umino for bigger, a bigger role as a star in the company. Um, it, this just sucked. And, and this was an, another terrible match um it's got a 4.37 on cage match just for your reference so you know we're talking about a lot of like two star sub star matches like on this show which you're just not used i'm not used to seeing that from new japan um we did have some questions here pumping bama said from a sole business standpoint do you think house of torture is a positive or negative for njpw and i'll just say this i think i think it's a negative I mean, I, I I can't point to all the references and tell you 100% that that's 100% the case. But, I mean, the only the only town that seems to lap up their, their antics typically is, like, Cork and Hall. And even then, that's a crowd that just is, like, playing along with the shtick. Other than that, a lot of it just goes non-reactive when, it, when they're traveling and they're out on the road. Unless, unless it's a big match, like you know, evil versus, um, Okada from this last year's G1 or the Shingo match, but by and large crowds aren't reacting to it. I I can't imagine they're selling much merch. I'm sure the contracts probably cost a lot. And then when people watch the matches, they don't enjoy them. So I just, I don't see the, the positive benefit. Um, 
you know, years and years ago, there was a time where I did used to watch a lot of WWE and it just got to a point where it felt like this was a company that was obsessed with getting heat. And right now that's kind of what the booking of new Japan is feeling like. And I don't even know if that's a Gato thing or if this is coming from uh Bushi road management, I don't know what is causing this, but it, you know, I, I, I understand this is all happening in a vacuum. Um, and it'd be one thing if it was just the one thing on the show, but as you're about to see, there was like four or five things all on the same night where it was just perplexing. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that they're a positive. Um, Cozy Dr. Lariat says, are we in agreement that House of Torture is saving New Japan? And uh, I have to imagine that that was a facetious uh, question that was posited our way. So we move on to the semi-main event of night one where the New Japan World Television Championship title was on the line as the champion Hiroshi Tanahashi in his second defense defended the title against his challenger Matt Riddle and he was defeated in 8 minutes and 35 seconds. Matt Riddle picks up the win here with the bro stone and he is the new NJPW World Television Champion. had to take a drink for the drink for the uh, working man and uh, you know, try to stay liquidated as I'm doing the show. So Matt Riddle defeats Hiroshi Tanahashi in one of the most bizarre uh, matches simply for the fact that the crowd was just dead ass silent for the entirety of this match. Not to mention um, we came to learn later that Tanahashi did suffer a injury in this match, that's kind of no surprise considering what we've been saying on this show that lately he just doesn't, he doesn't look like he's able to move correctly. And I know for years and years and years, it was always the same old adage, like don't count out the ace. You know, people always joked about his biceps and his back and his knees all being, you know, torn to shreds and him working through injuries and how maybe some of that was played up more than it actually was and all that stuff. But as time has gone on, he has just looked more and more broken down. And it's a lot of it's just mobility. He just doesn't look mobile. And so I'm not surprised that he suffered an injury in this match. And I don't say that in a gleeful way. I, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned. Tanahashi is easily one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Um, the match with Matt Riddle, obviously, I, I've come on the show and I've talked about how I don't think this is a good guy. I don't know if this was a good... Uh, investment for the company. Obviously, I think he's a fantastic talent when it comes to just pure in-ring wrestling. But um, you know, I always think the other shoe is going to drop eventually with this guy, anyways. But the the crowd in Japan, they did not seem to know who the fuck Matt Riddle was because they were completely silent for him. They didn't react to his shtick. They didn't react to his, you know, kind of weird, goofy, quasi dancing as he comes down to the ring the whole you know the, the matt riddle shtick like they didn't care for that they they really didn't react to most of what he was doing in in the match and you know at the end of it like he picks up the win um which if you've never seen the bro stone it's a, a modified jumping tombstone pile driver and uh the match was eight minutes 34 seconds and matt kind of just ate up Tanahashi like he was never really in it he just kind of got destroyed 
But uh, if their goal was to like make a star here and have him win emphatically in a dominant manner that got over it, I don't think they succeeded here because this chap now um, maybe it'll pay off later. Maybe uh, English speaking crowds will react in a different manner. I, I, who's to say? I don't know. Uh, I me personally, I don't see this as being a net positive overall. Um, just because I don't see Matt Riddle as being a major star, aside from the fact that he came from WWE, that's like his major claim to, to glory. Um, I don't see him making a, a huge difference at the box office for the company personally, but that being the case, he picks up the win. Um, he leans into the camera at the end, shouts that he didn't come to Japan to lose. And again, bizarre because at the end of the day a lot of what wrestling is about is about uh getting the crowd involved and getting the crowd to react and i can't say matt wrestled bad he wrestled great i mean he did all the same stuff he normally does but this crowd just was not familiar with him and probably a lot of that comes down to the fact that his only other appearance for the company was on a u.s show that very few people watched and other than that he showed in he showed up in a, a, a video package one time. They didn't play those ever again. I just, I don't think very many people in the crowd knew who the fuck he was. And then when he beat Tanahashi, like, it was like a stunned silence because I don't think they really expected it at all. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, uh, I was stunned because even though I thought, yeah, it's possible they, they do this, they switch it. Like, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, we move on to the main event of night one as the IWGP Global Heavyweight title was on the line and uh, the champion David Finley, he defended the title against Nick Nemeth, the challenger, and he was defeated by Nick Nemeth at 23 minutes, 7 seconds. Nick Nemeth hit his new finisher, the Danger Zone, and be, was crowned the second ever IWGP Global Heavyweight Champion. And um, for the men's major matches overall, this was probably the best one um, on the evening. I've, I've heard a lot of reports from, you know, and just different opinions. There's a lot of folks that really enjoyed this match. Um, I, I can't say that I was personally one of them. And uh, I don't want to be too harsh here because... I do see some upside with the inclusion of Nick Nemeth in the company. Um, you know, he has a great amateur background. He's a guy that, you know, was kind of underutilized and sort of a, you know, a black sheep in the company that he worked in for all those years with WWE in terms of the way he worked, in terms of, you know, his vision of pro wrestling and stuff like that. But He's here now and he's putting his best foot forward. And I've always been a fan of Dolph Ziggler to a certain extent, but I understand he has, I, I don't think he's, I wouldn't sit here and say like, oh, I've ever thought that he was a best in the world type performer. I've always thought of him as a guy, in my personal opinion, that is excellent in certain aspects of wrestling and then has other weird idiosyncrasies that I'm not as big a fan of. And then there, there's obviously the fact that he's worked in the house style of WWE all those years. So there's always been questions as well to be like, what would he look like in a different environment? Um, and that was something that we were hoping to kind of answer here. Um, I don't think him and David Finley had a bad match by any means. Um, you know, 
it's got a 6.79 on cage match. You know, you're that you're probably looking at like three and a quarter basically uh, with that sort of score. And that's probably, I guess, what I would give it. Um, and if you're listening, you're probably thinking like, well, you said that Zack Sabre Jr. and Eugene Nagato was like a three-star match was better. Well, to me, a sub eight-minute three-star match is always going to be better than the 23-minute three-and-a-quarter-star match. That's just my personal opinion and take on things. And um, what I didn't necessarily like about this match, and this is just, again, how I feel, I felt like I was seeing Nick Nemeth do a very WWE-style match in a New Japan ring. Um, he admittedly did get somewhat better reactions than Matt Riddle overall from the crowd. Um, in the beginning, they also seemed to not know him, but there were certain things that he was doing athletically throughout the match, and maybe it's a case of the fact that they were given a bit more time to work Um and the fact that he was working as a face against, you know, David Finley, who somewhat despised being the Bolt Club heel leader, that he was able to get over. Um, you know, people really liked some of his stinger splashes, and um, he, he's doing a new spot where he hits the same elbow drop over and over and over again. And we've seen, you know, where foreigners do stuff like that, like with Juice Robinson hitting the, like the juice juice and the crowd likes to react to stuff like that and it kind of helps get some of the foreign talent over um but ultimately like this match was good i I don't know if i'd ever rewatch it i didn't think it was great i didn't think it was like a star making performance and again the the end of the match like at the very very end here we end up in, in a situation where um finley hits a headbutt nick nemeth rebounds hits a super kick and then hits what was formerly known as the zigzag for the win. The crowd's not aware that this is his finish, and he's the new champion. So even though they were reacting pretty well from throughout the second half of the match, they didn't know how to react to this because they were, again, shocked that he picks up the victory here. Um, And I was, again, like last week when we gave our predictions, we were just wrong about... <laughs> so much with this show like we we got the we got all four of the top matches basically completely wrong and this was sort of like an unprecedented move where they gave two first time gaijin performers titles in their first matches back to back at the top of the card over long time well established you know um in-house talent and I, I just want to say this, like I, I understand why, like why they might be inclined to do something like this. You know what I mean? Like we saw it in the past with like AJ Styles when he first came in, he won the IWGP title on his first try, his first night in the company, and you know people didn't like that. And over time, they came around based on the level of his work and kind of accepted him. And I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. I think both of these guys are immensely talented, Nick Nemeth and Matt Riddle, and maybe this could be a good spot for them long-term, but neither of them are AJ Styles. <laughs> and um, they're not stars. The only thing that makes them quote-unquote stars at this point in time is the fact that they wrestled in WWE. And this isn't WWE hate. This is just based on the pure fact. What is what is their big claim to fame? 
You know, how many main events was Matt Riddle headlining for WWE prior to him leaving the company? How many pay-per-views did he work? I mean, if we're being honest here, Matt Riddle was a pretty prominent independent star darling wrestling for like Evolve and many other places. But we're talking about at max, you know, on a good, on a really, really, really good night, like a thousand people. But most of the time we're talking about a couple hundred, if that, um, for most of that time. And then, you know, he worked in NXT and he never held the NXT title, um, came to the main roster. And I mean, his two main claims to fame were the popularity of his tag teams with Pete Dunne and then later on Randy Orton. And granted, he had, you know, some title matches and he had some good matches. And I'm sure that the, the RK bro sold merch, but Matt Riddle was never a top of the card guy. He wasn't headlining pay-per-views. He wasn't headlining house shows. He wasn't holding tons of titles. He wasn't an actual star aside from the fact that he was just on television. And when you look at Nick Nemeth, I can point to like three really specific times where he felt really hot. One was when he won the, uh, when he cashed in the briefcase and uh, beat Del Rio and, and, you know, won the world title and then was relegated back down the card within the matter of a month. (laughs) Um, The second time I can think of is when he was the final survivor in the team authority versus uh, team WWE survivor series match. And mainly I just remember that match because sting. And then, you know, aside from that, uh, he had a really great match with Miz one time when his career was on the line challenging for the Intercontinental title. Um, but putting all of that aside, I, I don't know, man. Like, Nick Nemeth, like, he held the world title a few times in WWE, but he was never a top-of-the-line guy. He did headline some pay-per-views. He did, he did headline house shows, but it was usually as the guy that John Cena was beating. He wasn't, like, a top-of-the-card guy guy that was a proven draw proven commodity and somebody that you just look at and you're like damn this is uh, the fucking guy and i'm not saying that i'm opposed to either of them holding titles in new japan and i'm not opposed to them being a hundred you know well aside from matt riddle's personal issues i'm not opposed to them being in the company and working here i think they're both very talented but i don't understand why we would put both of these titles on both of them day one when New Japan has had issues in the past. Every time that they've put the title on guys that were signed outside, and let's be clear, Matt Riddle is splitting his time between, I'm guessing, the independents, but you know he, he also has a deal with MLW. I don't know how committed he is to New Japan. I know he has other dates, but uh, Nick Nemeth is you know signed to a contract with Impact Wrestling. And yeah, he'll be coming back, but like we've seen how this goes when they had the never title on Carl Anderson, they had the IC title on Jericho. They put the U S title on Kenny Omega and these outside guys, they go away and they don't come back, especially right now with the the state of the company and how things are going with their finances and them struggling to keep stars around and pay them. You know, how often can I expect these guys to be on these tours, defending these titles and and sticking around? Like I, I, I don't, and I don't because there's a precedent already set for this sort of thing. So there's that aspect of it. Then there's the other aspect where like, okay, granted, I, I'm not a David Finley fan necessarily. And, and um, 
you know, very rarely have I ever felt like he can have a truly great match with somebody that isn't of a higher caliber than him guiding him to that better match. Um, but with that being said, if they hadn't decided to cut bait on this experiment with him at the top of, of the Bullet Club and as a champion six months ago, now was not the time to do it. You don't do it right now after he just came off of a two back-to-back huge wins over Will Ospreay on his way out of the company. That makes literally no fucking sense whatsoever. Why did we watch him beat Will Ospreay back-to-back if you were just going to turn around and days later have him lose to Nick Nemeth his first night into the company? A guy that, granted, is very talented and has a lot of upside, but really has no skin in the game. You, you just jobbed out. Like, now wasn't the time that you needed to decide to cut bait on David Finley. It should have been during the G1. <laughs> or whenever you, you know, definitely way before Wrestle Kingdom, but not post-Wrestle Kingdom and post-New Beginning after you just gave him two of the biggest wins of his career and, you know, had Will Ospreay basically go all out to make this guy and, and put him over. It's perplexing. And when you look at the show in its totality, the fact that there's a lack of great matches, and this was something I kind of alluded to last week where I was like, you know, they're, they're calling it Title Fight Friday. And when you look at how many championships are being defended, and um, it just looks like a stacked card. But when you really start to break it down, you start thinking about what could potentially go wrong. And I, I never thought it was going to go this wrong. But damn, damn, they really fucking delivered. Anyways, uh, and when I say delivered, I mean delivered on, on the bullshit. Um, at the end of the match, uh, Nick Nemeth cuts an impassioned promo, uh, basically uh, says he's going to be global champion for a while. And then uh, he comes back in the ring and he asks for Tanahashi to be his tag team partner the following night, which was, he was supposed to team with Taguchi, but, um, you know, kind of strange there. Um, so we move on to... Night 2. New beginning in Sapporo Night 2. We start off the show with uh, another kickoff Frontier Zone tag team match. Um, first things first, as I mentioned earlier, um, Hiroshi Tanahashi was injured and he was unable to compete on day 2 due to an injury to his right ankle. We did have a question from Death Triangle 720 said, after his recent injury, should Tana just take a break from wrestling? And you know, that's not for me to say. Uh, if you want my personal opinion, I think he should have taken a break a while ago. But I'm not a doctor. I don't know the state of the company and their needs and finances. And I don't know about his drive, what what he wants to do with his body. But um, I guess it's his body, his choice. But uh, I, I, he looks in pain every time I see him move. So maybe, maybe. But I don't think it's going to happen. Anyways, uh, we had Frontier Zone action as the team of Toriyano and Tomoya. They teamed up once again to take on Tomoaki Hanma and Katsuya Murashima. Uh, they picked up the victory here, 7 minutes and 48 seconds. Tomoya hit a finisher called the SOD. And um, I don't have too much to add here. Uh, I'd be echoing a lot of the sentiments I had the previous night. The one thing I will say is so far... Uh, I, I'm a little higher on Shoma Kato than I am on Katsuya Murashima, just uh, on their very limited um, exposure that we've had to them so far. 
what I've seen, I'm a little bit higher on Shoma Kato. But uh, they're both improving, and they're both getting better, and that's a good sign. So um, we move on to the first match of the official card, and we had 10-man tag team action as the team of El Desperado, Toby Makabe, Yo, Oleg Bolton, I'm not going to call him Bolton Oleg because that's, I know that they're calling him that name, but that's not his name. His name is Oleg Bolton. <laughs> and Shota Umino, they defeated the team of the House of Torture, Evil Show, Red Narita, Yujiro, and Kanemaru at 7 minutes and 50 seconds when Shota Umino hit the Death Rider on Yoshinabu Kanemaru. And so I guess Umino picks up a bit of a moral victory, even though he lost the previous night and was unsuccessful picking up the title um, from Evil. He he gets a win here in a multi-man tag team match, and that's the payoff to this feud with him and Kanemaru. I guess that's it. So um, <laughs> um, at the end of the match, though, while everything was going on, um, uh, Yo had snuck off with the junior title, and Taunt Show, who is just you know, livid about this whole thing and show chases yo to the back, which this was kind of, um, ironic because show had stolen the IWGP junior title in the lead up to his title challenge against Desperado. So former partner, yo takes the title. It appears that yo is very likely the next challenger for show's title. So we're getting show versus yo part 16. We've seen this match a million times before. I see people online talking about how this has so much potential, We've seen it before many, many times. It's never delivered, so <laughs> not excited about that one. Um, and then after this took place, uh, the lights went out. We got a video package on the screen directed at Shota Umino, who was in the ring um, basking in the glory of his victory. And it's a clip of the scapegoat Jack Perry beating up Shota at the Battle in the Valley event earlier this year. Um, Shota walked over to the English commentary and said, Jungle Boy, question mark. Chris responded, I don't think they call him that anymore. And uh, Umino said, I don't care. I will beat his ass. So looks like we're on our way to Jack Perry versus Shota Umino. The next match of the evening, we moved on to, uh, again, 10-man tag team action. Um, and we had the team of Chaos. Yano, Yoshihashi, Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, and the Rainmaker, Kazushiko Okada, as they defeated the team of the United Empire, Jeff Cobb, Great Ocon, Francesco Akira, Kel Newman, along with guest Matt Riddle. Um, Okada picks up the victory via Rainmaker, 11 minutes and 34 seconds over Callum Newman. And actually, before I get to that, uh, I did have a question here that I overlooked. MJ does PR. He said, thoughts on the scapegoat character and how it's developing. And do you expect to see him in Japan before Windy City Riot? And I assume that MJ asked this prior to the news that dropped a few days ago because uh, it looks like we are going to um, be seeing um, the scapegoat Jack Perry in action in the New Japan Cup. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so he will be in Japan prior to his uh, date at the Windy City Riot in Chicago. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have too many thoughts on the scapegoat character. Again, we haven't seen too much of him. We saw him the one time, and I thought it was a, a fine enough introduction of a character. But since 
he's been MIA since then. I don't know what to think other than the fact that we it was a bearded jungle boy, you know, and it was kind of a hot topic at that time. And now there's been very little follow up. We got this video package, but, you know, there are um, technological challenges when it comes to New Japan and uh, showcasing video packages. So it wasn't the greatest quality. Um, I'm sure they probably put that out on their social media and maybe we could watch it in a, a bit better presentation. But, uh, you know, um, I don't know. For me, like, I I also wonder if maybe part of the reason that we didn't see Umino win the Never title is because he's moving into this uh, feud with Jack Perry. And then it gets me wondering, well, he's an AEW guy. Maybe he has to win. And maybe we don't want the Never title going to Jack Perry, which is like, this is all the darkest timeline. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, back to the third match of the night. So, again, Okada picks up the victory over Matt Riddle, or I'm sorry, over uh, uh, Callum Newman, uh, just like he did the night prior. Another fun, fast-paced, you know, tag team match. Uh, I I don't have too much more to add here, other than the fact that we really just didn't get any kind of any kind of like forward story progression in terms of the, the what's going to happen with these two factions. Um, instead, we just kind of got the chalk presentation of Okada's final two nights in the company. We already talked at depth about that last week, about the perplexing nature of these two matches that they decided to book in the first place. But, you know, it was Okada riding off into the sunset. Um he picks up the victory after a very good tag team match and it was fun and it was the exact outcome you'd expect. And, you know, the winner was never in doubt. Tanahashi's at ringside wearing a suit. Obviously he's the president of the company. He's on a um, commentary and he was supposed to be in this match, but was unable again because of the injury. All of chaos celebrates. Okada hugs each and every single one of them. They do their final bows and then, Okada gets on the mic and he says, thank you for looking after me all these years and I will see you all once again. And he leaves. And that is the final match for this period of um, Okada's career in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And we are left kind of wondering what the fuck is going on with Chaos and United Empire. So we jump into the next match of the evening where we had G.O.D. versus G.O.D., the original G.O.D. members, Tangaloa and Tamatanga, teaming up to take on the new G.O.D., El Fantasmo and Hikaleo. And a very good match. Hikaleo ends up picking up the victory 14 minutes and 4 seconds as he hits the godsend on Tamatanga for the 1-2-3. And uh, the beginning of this match was funny because um, we we got... uh, G.O.D. entrance music and then suddenly Ghetto, or I'm sorry, Giotto walks out with a uh, referee shirt on and it turns out he's the special guest referee and they'd been alluding to something like this on commentary where they'd been asking like whose side is he going to be on when the night comes and then it turns out he's the special guest referee and um, this again also was Tamatanga's final New Japan match in his contract as well. He's no longer with the company. Uh, Tamatanga and Tangaloa came out to their old original G.O.D. theme. 
They came out with the face paint that they were very famous for wearing uh, in big matches for many years. They haven't done that in quite a few years. And um, the match started off as, you know, somewhat kind of like a comedy and, you know, basic wrestling and kind of friendly. And then at a certain point, Giotto, like, just stopped kind of putting up with the shenanigans of these guys trying to have a friendly, like, you know, match, and he just stops everybody and starts pushing them all around. And I, I don't know if he asked for them to have a clean fight or a real fight, but whatever it was that he said to them, all these guys began to start brawling with one another. And then from that point on, it became a real match. Um, it wasn't necessarily like the greatest tag team match in the world, but it was kind of just what it needed to be. Um, down the, you know, in the second third of the match, it felt like. ELP and Hikaleo were kind of controlling things and um, hitting a lot of their big signature stuff and, and um, you know, kind of focusing on Tamatonga. And it looked like maybe, you know, the old G.O.D. wasn't even going to get into the match. Then at a certain point, um, Phantasmo went up to the top for a frog splash. And while he was coming down, they had incredible camera work because Tama was off camera and he runs up and hits a gun stun on Phantasmo as he comes down. Incredible spot. Uh, from that point, we started getting a lot of big uh, spots. Hikaleo ends up getting isolated in the ring by the old G.O.D., and they start hitting him with all of their big moves, you know, Magic Killer and uh, Gun Stun and, and all this different stuff, and Hikaleo's kicking out of everything, and then eventually it comes down to just Tom, Tama and Hikaleo, and Hikaleo's trying to hit the Gun Stun over and over again, and Hikaleo keeps... Uh, countering it not going into it and then at one point he props up tamatanga on his shoulders throws him in the air and hits his own version of the gun stun um and then ultimately after a few big moves and uh believable near falls he hits the godsend chokeslam pins him one two three uh tama kisses his hands places it on the njpw logo in the center the rest of the group applauds him and uh, they get the the grand goodbye. So Tamatanga doing business, putting his younger brother over in his final match with the company. And a very good match. I would have probably gone um, probably like three and a half, three. Yeah, probably three and a half. Pretty good stuff here. And a good feel good moment. I think the, um, you know, just the, the familial element of it all probably elevated it uh, just a bit for me. The next match of the night, we had the team of Nick Nemeth and Ryuzuki Taguchi. They teamed together to take on the Bull Club War Dog team of David Finley and Ghetto. Um, and in this match, Nick Nemeth ended up picking up the win with his finisher, the Danger Zone, 7 minutes, 34 seconds, with a pinfall victory over Ghetto. I did have a question here. Again, MJ Does PR says... Are we heading towards a trilogy between Nemeth and Finley? Is there more tank for this feud? And again, I'm, I'm guessing he probably asked this question a little bit earlier, maybe before this. I'm not sure. But um, personally, I don't think we're going to get another match for them unless something happens that I'm not aware of because it looks like Nick Nemeth's next uh, targeted match is not with David Finley. It's going to be with uh, um, Tanahashi at sakura genesis so um 
going into the match, Nick Nemeth did have a huge black left eye, so I guess he got a shiner from the night prior. Um, I didn't notice it the night prior. Charlton said he came into the match with it and it got worse, but it, it was pretty bad. So there was definitely some physicality to the, the match the prior night, but um, nothing crazy here. I mean, this was a, a Taguchi tag team match with uh, you know Nick Nemeth, so it was fine. Um, Nick Nemeth did hit that series of elbow drops on Ghetto that I talked about from the previous evening, and he hit them in quicker and, and longer succession, so... Uh, it seems as though he's kind of picking that up as, uh, he, you know, he, he realized that that was getting over with the crowd, so he's doing a bit more of that. Um, but at the end of the match, Nemeth hits a super kick on Finley, Taguchi hits a flying, uh, you know, hip attack on Finley, and then Nick Nemeth hit the uh, inverted DDT jumping zigzag on Gato, picks up the win. And after the match, uh, Nick Nemeth got on the mic. He looks at Tanahashi, says he wants to defend the global title against him. Tanahashi stands up, shouts, I agree with you. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I guess there's no better way to get a shot at the number two title in the company than by getting jobbed out clean in eight minutes for the TV title the night prior. (laughs) Uh, I know people fail up in this company all the time, but I just, I don't know. I don't know about that one. (laughs) um the rest of the card were a series of singles matches between the members of just five guys and lij who have been feuding with one another for several months now so uh the first match of the night was bushi versus taka michinoku and um you know kind of discussing the series just very briefly last week i was kind of struggling to even figure out what members of just five guys were going to pick up victories over LIJ. And even though I knew at the time while we were doing the preview show that it was very likely that neither team was getting a clean sweep here, I just had trouble figuring out which... Well, let me put it this way. It felt like for any Just Five Guy member to win any match in this entire feud on this night, it would be an upset when it came down to the singles action. And so the chalk pick typically would have been all the members of LIJ, but that just didn't seem feasible. So the hard part last week was deciding which guys from LIJ are going to get upset versus which guys are going to go over. Um, first match of the series, we had Bushi versus Takamichinoku. Uh, this went nine minutes and 13 seconds. Bushi picks up the win with a modified figure four. Um, and this was fine. Uh, nothing great. I mean, you know, again, it, it is a Bushi match, and I'm not the biggest Bushi fan in the world. I am a big fan of Taka, and I thought Taka uh, did some great work here. Um, but yeah, at the end of the match, Bushi uh, hits a Michinoku driver on Taka Michinoku for a near fall, hits a uh, second rope drop uh, missile drop kick on his knee, and then applies the modified figure four leg lock. And apparently, in the post match comments, Taka mentioned how. This particular modified figure four is one that he popularized. So Bushi sort of adding injury to insults from what I gathered. Um, So at this point, LIJ goes up one to nothing in the five match series. Second match of the night, we had uh, Doki versus Hiromu Takahashi. And um, in a surprise turn of events, Doki pulls off the first big, huge upset of the evening 
where he defeats Hiromu Takahashi in singles action for the first time in his career, 14 minutes, 45 seconds, with the suplex de la luna. And this match was just freaking awesome. Um, I really, really, really liked this match. In fact, uh, this match and the match following it, I thought were the two best matches of the weekend for New Japan entirely. Um, this wasn't my match of the show, but it was pretty close. And if you told me it was yours, I probably wouldn't argue with you because they were pretty close in quality. But uh, um, Doki had recently pinned Hiromu in a multi-man tag team match. And then um, they faced off against one another once again in a, the gauntlet match at Corken Hall a few weeks prior. Uh, they went to a 10-minute draw. And all-time, Hiromu was 4-0 and in singles matches against Doki. And this match, they just went crazy. Like, from the very, very get-go, Doki dives through the ropes onto Hiromu to start the match. And these guys were all over the place, brawling on the outside, tons of dives, lots of great action on the inside. And, um, you know, Doki was clearly the underdog here. The crowd was very much in support of him in Sapporo, which... Like, is kind of like, you know, crowds do like to see underdogs pick up victories, but Hiromu is so popular. This was still, by those standards, uh, a bit surprising, but Doki was getting a lot of cheers. Um, Hiromu was able to hit a lot of his big offense, like his Death Valley driver into the corner pad and his clothesline and um, dynamite plunger uh, at one point. Um, Doki kept countering with the Doki Chokey and, uh, just various different other big moves and a lot of uh, close near falls by both guys with uh, a lot of like Yave style um, roll-ups and, and, you know, counters, things like that. But at the end of the match, Doki hits a leaping DDT for near fall. And then he hits a swinging back suplex and at 14 minutes and 36 or 30 seconds. And then uh, he hits the suplex de la Luna, which he'd been trying to hit all night and kept missing it and finally he hits it and he gets the clean victory and charlton was apoplectic <laughs> and uh just screaming into the mic that doki's finally done it and this felt like a, a big shift a huge huge win and i know like Hiromu's not the champion right now uh so you know it's non-title and i know that like when they could always end up against opposites of one another in the in like uh Super Juniors and Hiromu will pick that victory back up, but Doki's never beaten the guy clean. Him getting a victory of this magnitude over a major star in the company has never happened, and it just felt like a really positive thing, especially in the midst of so many negative things happening in the company. This was a shining beacon, um, and you know, uh, we don't do this for for the acclaim, but I just want to say I was one of the first voices when Doki came on the scene that was pretty much saying like, hey, there's something to this guy in his first Super Juniors when everyone was calling him Dookie and making all the jokes about how terrible and botchy he was. I was on this show telling Jeremy like, there's something about him. I like this guy and I think that people are missing it and I feel vindicated with, with how, how he's grown and, and everything like that. And him and Hiromu always have great matches against one another. So um, this was fantastic. Uh, I would probably go like four stars on this one. Then the next match of the evening, talking uh, about 
two guys that have great matches against one another. Uh, we had Shingo Takagi and Taichi going one-on-one. And the stipulation going into this match was that uh, whoever lost would have to delete their YouTube channel. So I guess both these guys are YouTubers. They got channels. Um, Shingo and Taichi, they've wrestled one another many, many, many times in the past. And just classic matches each and every single time. Um, and at the end of the match here, um, surprisingly, Taichi picks up the victory with the dangerous backdrop. 17 minutes and 28 seconds. Now, he has defeated Shingo before, but very rarely. So this, again, another huge upset. And if there were any two upsets that I would have wanted, like if I had been the one who was given the book and you you just told me, like, these are, you know, you get two upsets in this best of five series. What are you going to do? This is what I would have done. I would have had Doki and Taichi go over. They were guys that I was counting out, but I was also supporting because I'm fans of theirs. Um, and I thought that they had a slightly better match than the match prior, um, which is no surprise. Again, like I said, they've had many great matches to to against one another, whereas the um, Doki and Hiromu match, there there's some great strikes in that, but it's mainly death-defying, insane, high-flying, crazy action Tai Chi and Shingo is your traditional, never style, hard hitting, strong style fight of the year type of match. And they uh, definitely delivered here. But that's not to say that this is all that this was. Because, I mean, at one point, Shingo hit a Hurricane Rana <laughs> in this match. But, you know, we're talking huge suplexes, DDTs, headbutts, um, you know, all the stops. These guys have, they've gone to war many, many times in the past. So, um, and it also kind of felt like with, and they brought this up on commentary with, you know, guys like Osprey, Okada, and Tama leaving. There's holes in the roster, and you can kind of see Taichi and Shingo potentially being two of those guys to step up and and fill that void. And they they definitely were wrestling like guys that were hungry for the spot. But then again, they've been doing that for years on end. Nothing's changed, so it's hard to say. But uh, um. Down the stretch here, lots of hard form strikes. Taichi hits an Enziguri. Shingo hits a pumping bomber. And then uh, Taichi hits the axe bomber, and they both go down at 14 minutes and 30 seconds. There's a lot of double downs in this match. The crowd was eating it up. And then um, Taichi makes it to his feet, hits another Enziguri, hits a drop, drop kick, and a dangerous back suplex for the 1 2 3. Uh, a lot of people, I don't think they expected that to be the finish. I know I didn't. Um, but this was very, very hard-hitting, very, very intense, and just an incredible match. I'd probably go, like, four-plus. Like, I don't know if I'd go maybe four and a quarter. I don't know. It was awesome. Like, both of these matches were awesome. Um, so, yeah, that. And then um, in the backstage comments, it appears that, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Taichi basically, like, backed out. Now, Taichi won the match, but he started uh, getting second uh, cold feet about the stipulation and kind of felt like, you know, there's a lot of people that are subscribing to both of our channels. It's not really fair to them. I'm not going to make him uh, uh, delete the channel. But Shingo was adamant he was going to delete the channel. And then um, Taichi was telling him he shouldn't do it. And basically inviting him to come onto his channel. And that should be his punishment. So I don't know. I don't know if he's really going to delete his channel. It, uh, it looks like we all got worked. So if you had stakes in that, you know, unfortunately it doesn't look like uh, you're getting the payoff that maybe you wanted, I guess. <laughs> So we move on to the um, semi-main event of the evening where the uh, 
we had Yota Suji taking on Yuya Uemura in a hair versus hair match. And uh, this was the big one. A lot of uh, fan interest and heat in this one. They did an incredible 15-minute video package on this. Unfortunately, sometimes New Japan doesn't seem to be able to get their shit together because if you go on New Japan World, the video's there. You can watch it. It's part of the promotion for the tour, but you can't watch. For English speakers, there's no um, subtitles. But then if you and then I was like, well, then surely I'll go to YouTube and look up, look it up on New Japan World. But the New Japan World channel doesn't have it. You have to go to the NJPWUS channel to find it. And it's like this the, the, the actual video and the comments made between these two guys was really great promotion. But they don't make it easy for you to find this stuff and to access it. Um, in either case, they had a great video package to build up the match on the actual show and they used a lot of the clips from that promotional material um just different comments these guys had made kind of talking about the importance of this match their identity how they uh, you know compare with one another their philosophies their ambitions and and is really good shit um unfortunately the match really did not deliver in the way that you would expect a big time match between Suji Nimura. Um, Yota Suji did end up picking up the victory after 28 minutes and 20 seconds with the Gene Blaster um, to defeat Yuya Uemura, who has now lost his hair in the hair versus hair match. Um, the story of the match is great. I mean, the character work is great. The build to the match was great. Um, the heat between them, it's all been building for months and it's very, very, very good. But then they put them out there for 28 minutes and I don't know what, what it was, but, um, they just, they wrestled a really, really measured pace. The the action wasn't bad. Like, it's not like they had a, a bad match, but it was slow. Um, a lot slower than what you would expect from these two guys. And part of me kind of just thinks that maybe they were having an off night maybe they weren't connecting with the crowd the way they expected maybe there were jitters because it was the first time they've been expected to go this long in a prominent position against one another you know they didn't have a veteran like a will osprey or you know a sonata to guide them through that moment where they kind of had to just rely on one another um both guys recently returning from excursion so kind of put in a in a, a bit of a tough position and they put a lot of pressure on themselves uh you know kind of saying in the comments that they expected to have the best match of the evening the evening the weekend the tour better than the world title match and um maybe it was better than the world title match in the long run but uh you know again the, the action wasn't bad but i guess for me what i was thinking about is like i've seen a lot of hair versus hair matches and typically when you think about the Apuetas matches from like Mexico or some of like the Joshi hair versus hair matches we've seen over the years. Like these tend to be blow-offs to long-standing rivalries and feuds that are very, very heated. And the match usually reflects that, you know, but they were kind of wrestling like a classic or attempting to wrestle a classic big match style New Japan house show, you know, house style match, but not as effectively as a lot of other guys uh, on the roster can do it at this current time. So 
um, down the stretch, they did it did pick up and it got a lot better. And it, you know, uh, it got really really good uh, down the very very tail end, like the last like four or five minutes. But the first twenty three minutes were just a lot slower, a lot less hate filled than I was anticipating. Um, looking on cage match, it's got a six point two six. You know, that's basically like three three and a quarter. Um, for, you know, around a 30-minute match, especially with how much anticipation and heat there was for the build to this, you would kind of expect something different. Um, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite what I thought I was expecting, but um, it was... One thing I will say, though, is even though there were parts of the match that were slow, I did note the amount of young women screaming their names in the dead spaces, the match was refreshing because that's something that's been missing from New Japan quite a bit lately. And anytime I watch old matches and I hear the impassioned fans screaming their name, um, that's always a good sign. And there was quite a bit of that here. And undeniably, these two guys are big stars. I'm just kind of wondering, should they have been put in this position in the first place? Because we're, we're at a point where we're trying to make big stars. And I know part of the story here is that Suji and Yumura, these two guys, uh, they're linked with one another and they've been f at a parody and one of them needs to go up and one of them needs to go down and kind of that just be the the crossroads of their, their feud. I get that. But I am wondering, like, why couldn't, shouldn't they be working with more experienced guys at the top of the card who can teach them how to do this big match style that they're trying to emulate with one another wouldn't that be more beneficial is what i'm wondering um i don't know i don't know i don't know if now was the time that they needed in terms of booking to do this reconstruction of yuya Uemura. um especially like i don't know if they're ready to pull the trigger in suji anyway so we'll see but um the the post when the match ended and uh, Suji hit the, uh, the the Gene Blaster, the, the spear, and pinned Yumura. There was an audible, like, loud gasp, almost like shrieks. People were shocked. Um, both of these guys have incredible heads of hair. So I, I do think there's a lot of fan investment in the outcome of this match. Um, Suji pulls Yumura up by his hair, up to his feet. And he, they pulled out a tarp, a chair. They put it in the ring. And... Uh, Yumura sits down and um, he takes it like a man. Suji grabs a huge tuft of his hair and just cuts this long, like the biggest portion of his ponytail completely off. Crowd is, uh, you know, just freaking out. Suji grabs clippers, starts buzzing Yumura's head. Yumura stops him. He pulls the uh, Wrestle Kingdom uh, uh, Suzuki gimmick where he grabs the clippers and starts shaving his own head. And, um, that's pretty much the finish of that. Um, but post-match, Suji um, walks out of the ring and um, walks over to Okada and basically says, like, are you satisfied with the way you're leaving? I'm disappointed in you. And then, uh, you know, marched to the back, still holding you more as ponytail. So great post-match segment at the very, very end there. But um, again... More, more of this like kind of work shoot stuff with Okada on his way out of the company.
We did have a couple questions here regarding this match. Uh, Death Triangle 720 says, do you think Yuya is in the same position of Shota Umino last year after the Naito match? And, um, you know, I have to say no. Um, although I think there could be a fair comparison between the two, but like, honestly, Umino seemed to have been brought in with a lot more, um, fanfare given bigger opportunities and shots, uh, leading to that match with Naito and, you know, the whole thing with the Naito match was that felt kind of, um, underwhelming in light of the fact that he was in a major main event with an experienced veteran like Naito. Whereas with like Yuya Uemura, this is the first really lengthy match that he's ever had. And I didn't come off with the, I mean, him and Suji were not botching the way that Umino and Naito were the year prior. Um, I do think there are some similar trajectory comparisons you can make, but I don't, I don't see him in the same position. In fact, from a storyline standpoint, I mean, he was a guy that really up to this point, the only singles feud he's had is with Suji, someone that he was already wrestling, you know, prior to his um, exit from the company and his excursion. Now he's back and he's still fighting the same guy. Even if it's a, a different version of both of them, they're still linked to one another. Now, you know, he's this firestorm, but there's really not too much defining about him. And now that he's lost his hair, it's like, He's going to have to rebuild, and that is uh, that's somewhat exciting. I think that's a good uh, storyline. Um, from that standpoint, I'm just uh, right now. I don't have the most. I don't have the most faith in the booking. So, I I guess we do have to see where this goes. But I, I'm hoping they don't squander Yumora. Um, a dojo asks. He says, "How much of the last minute?" on-screen animosity between the younger generation and Okada was legit, and how much was last-minute attempts to build some heat and set up matches for the future when Okada returns from his U.S. excursion? And, you know, the truth is, I, I don't know. Um, I can't tell how much of this was the company trying to babyface themselves and babyface their young stars and play into the, the real or even rumored um, stories about Okada unwilling to do business with these guys and you know that sort of thing um or whether it was people going off script and being like hey he's leaving anyways I, i'm not going to get in trouble let me just air my grievances or maybe somewhere in between i really don't know um i guess i could ask around um that's a great question and i'm kind of wondering the same thing because uh part of me feels like if they are maybe they are hedging their bets a little bit here and anticipating potentially being able to do something with these guys later on. But in the post-match comments, um, Suji challenged Okada to a match at the anniversary event in his final singles match. But like Okada's not going to work that date. I, I don't know. Like they give these guys a lot of leeway and sometimes the stuff they say just isn't going to pan out. Um, last question on the subject. Stale Burger Bun says, now that Yumora is a bald bitch, do you see him having a gimmick refresh slash change, or does he go on a losing streak now? As we know from Dragon Ball Z, that hair is an indication of power levels in Japanese media. Um, <laughs> love the Dragon Ball Z reference. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if he goes on a 
on a losing streak, but you know, it, it seemed like when he first came in, you know, they were only having him tag with other members of just five guys. And he wasn't really getting any singles matches. And they, when he did start to get singles matches, they were just with Suji. And now he's lost that feud. And the one defining uh, attribute that he had was his hair. And now that's gone. And they were saying on commentary how the whole point of this feud was like both of these guys' identities were so wrapped up in their appearance. Now he's lost his hair. He has to rebuild. So yes, I do think that there is going to be some level of refreshment or... Uh, reinvention I just don't know what that is and maybe it's great I hope it is because this is a guy that I've been really high on since day one both of them um, even since the first time we ever saw them debut on the roster you know as young lions Um, so I hope they don't fuck them up (laughs) Um, and let's jump into the main event here so Uh, The main event of the evening, we had the IWGP World Heavyweight title was on the line. Uh, The eighth champion, Tetsuya Naito, was defending against the challenger, former champion, Sonata. And uh, Naito was able to uh, successfully retain the title, 24 minutes, 5 seconds, with an inside cradle, he retains the title. And um, you know what's funny about this match is... For most of the match, I really liked what I was seeing. Now, granted, we've been wondering on this show why they were even doing this as the follow-up to their match at Wrestle Kingdom. And everybody knows that the Wrestle Kingdom match, I was kind of high on it, and I thought that there was you know, some botchiness and some sloppiness, but that the grittiness of it all kind of still worked in the moment. But they decided to go with this match a second time the following month, which was kind of perplexing because they almost never do that following Wrestle Kingdom. And the build to the feud has not been great. So much so that like Naito has talked openly about Sonata's character not, you know, doing promotion and not having anything interesting to say. And, you know, none of that's anything that we as fans can really sink our teeth into or get invested in. It's just like, I guess it is what it is. It's not great. But um, they came out, and when the match started, like the one thing you can't say is that these guys aren't great professional wrestlers. Maybe they're not going to give you, you know, an Okada Omega level style match, but they are good workers. And so the match started, and this was kind of the polar opposite of the hair versus hair match, where like the begin the first like three quarters of the match were really good. And even if they weren't doing as many dramatic things like, oh yeah, uh, in the match prior, they did a top rope uh, Spanish fly. that was pretty sick, but they weren't doing stuff like that. They were just doing what they were playing the hits. They're doing what they always do, but because they're both so seasoned and the fact that Naito is so over plus for whatever reason, Sonata was just a lot more over in Sapporo than he happened to be in the Tokyo Dome. Maybe that speaks to the fact that he's better as a challenger chasing than he is as the champion. I don't know. But um, they were getting great reactions, much, much better. There was a lot less awkward silence throughout the match. And I was like, damn, this!" I'd, I'd actually heard the match wasn't good going into it. And I was like, they're having a, a pretty good match. They might even, This might end up, wind up being better than the um the wrestle kingdom match and then i don't know what happened i think something on the outside or 
there was some sort of um um something happened sonata got hurt i don't know oh there was one crazy thing though that was pretty awesome sonata went to the top rope and he did like a uh so naito always does those neck breakers where like he has a guy drunk like draped on the ropes and then he brings them down on his knee with the back of their head and um he did that a few times to sonata here and sonata went to the top rope with naito and came off the top rope and dropped the back of naito's head on his knee uh in retaliation which was pretty fucking sick but um i don't know what happened but somewhere along the line sonata got dazed he got fucking hurt and this match just starts to unravel down down the stretch and we're talking way worse way worse than the the previous month's match but it's like they got bit by the same bug they had previously um like naito goes for this destino and they're just stuck they're they're both standing there and like they're both like frozen for wait it was probably like 10 seconds but it felt like an eternity and neither man is sure which way to go um and then from there like they keep the it's very clear they're trying to go into this really amazing series of reversals and near falls the big match finishing sequence that new japan's very famous for but like sonata just starts falling apart um down the tail stretch and like um naito's going for destinos and sonata's not able to get him up or when he does like they're they're botching they're falling all over the place um sonata was like very became very groggy and trying to do the deadfall everything just started to fall apart like i don't know it it got real weird at the end there um but i guess the story of the end of the match is sonata kept trying to hit deadfall he couldn't hit the deadfall um he was able to get shining wizard and zaguri but that wasn't enough um and then at the very end of the match um after a few shining wizards uh he still couldn't hit the deadfall and naito ended up hitting a springboard tornado ddt into a cradling um small package for the one two three and there was also there was one point where he went for that same cradling ddt and they ended up on the ground and maybe this is where sonata got knocked out i don't know but like they, they they just fell on the ground and then like naito put sonata in a guillotine choke from there and they all had to like try to play it off and like i felt bad for commentary because chris charlton and uh walker stewart man they were trying to their best to cover for the shortcomings of this match but this was very noticeable and it it killed the juice of the match and i thought i thought they're on their way to another like four-star match but this was it, it was so egregiously bad down the tail stretch that I, I don't know. I'd probably go like three and a quarter. Like it, it got bad. It got real, real bad. It's got a 5.91 on, on cage match right now for reference. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but ultimately, and, and it felt like the reason they went to that finish is because Sonata couldn't do the Destino. Like they were trying to do the Destino and they couldn't, or I, I don't know. It, it was a fucking weird finish. Um, and there's one point where it, I also noticed that um, Naito was going to put him up for the Northern Lights bomb and he was in position and he couldn't get Sonata up and Sonata wouldn't go up. I don't know. It, it got fucking weird. Anyways, 
Um, <laughs> Sonata loses um, in title matches to Naito two times in a row. So he's done. Um, he heads to the back. Naito gets on the mic. He thanks everybody for being out there. And then um, they he does the roll call. They do the confetti. But then he notices Okada's out there. And he calls Okada into the ring. Um, he offers uh, a fist bump. Okada goes to do it. He spits in Okada's face, and then they go into a series of um, brawling maneuvers before they both end up in uh, poses, staring off against one another. Very fun. The crowd pops for that. Um, and Naito's on his way to face show, <laughs> the junior champion on March 6th. And uh, Okada takes his final bow, walks out, and that's the end of the evening. And not a perfect show, but much, much, much better than night one um we got some uh some overall questions and comments about the show quite a few death triangle 720 says do you think new japan should just take a small break and regroup to figure out the landscape of the company and uh, i don't think they can uh, afford to do that but they need to figure something out because i don't want to be like too um hyperbolic but like shit's not good right now um Tim the Fourth Ra says, "What are your thoughts on the growing sentiment that New Japan is in a dire position? Is it hyperbole, or is there genuine concern for the future of the company?" And, and, and I can't sit here and say that there's, you know, people that are like, "Oh my God, they're going to go out of business." But, um, you know, this is the end of the fourth and the fifth generation with guys like Suzuki on their way out, and um, Nagata on his last leg, and then Tanahashi's breaking down, and. You know, all the guys from the fifth generation, like Naito, again, is on his last leg. Okada's gone. Abushi's gone. Like, this is it. This this show, these two series of shows are the end of a fucking era for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And there are things to look forward to, but there were so... Uh, this booking was so fucking weird that it's not anything that would um, instill confidence in, in in the company right now um i don't know how to pronounce this person's name but i guess forward clips says what do we even do at this point dragon master adam says my question what the hell is happening navith says what and i cannot stress this enough the hell was with the first night in uh, sapporo and rambo and slam pick says in the words of charles dickens it was the best of times it was the worst of times Thoughts on the vast disparity in terms of overall quality and fan reception between night one and night two of Sapporo. Um, you know, I, I just gave you guys my full review and most of my overall thoughts on, on both nights, but um, I don't know, man. Things don't feel good, you know, and, and that's not a good feeling to have right now. And we try to be positive on this show. We try to be honest with you when we aren't positive, but I again like i said i wish this was not a week where i was alone uh and where jeremy could be on the show with me and i know some people probably expect me to just light fire to the promotion and scream at gato and and have hot takes but i just kind of feel disappointed and sad that this is what's happening because it feels like it's a failure of management and a failure of the booking more so and, and creative more so than anything else so anyways, um, the NJPW 57, 52nd anniversary event and New Japan uh, Cup Night 1 
are will be taking place on March the 6th. Uh, the next time that we record will be uh, Monday, March the 4th. So I'm sure that me and Jeremy will probably have uh, a bit of a uh, better review. And like I mentioned, we're doing a full review for the New Japan or a preview for the new, <laughs> I keep saying review. We're going to do a preview for the entirety of the New Japan Cup. I believe Chris Sampson's coming on to do that because he usually does every year. Um, and he had offered, but I don't know how he's feeling after those two shows. Uh, so I'm not going to do an in-depth preview here, but just give you guys the rundown. Um, on the show, uh, the announced show that we got, Tingaloa and Hanma will be taking on Okan and Jeff Cobb of the uh, United Empire. Second match of the night, Nichols and Zack Sabre Jr. of TMDK take on the G.O.D. team of El Fantasmo and Hikaleo. Third match of the night, Goto and Ishii of Chaos team up with Desperado and Tanahashi to take to take on the LIJ team of Bushi, Hiromu, Shingo, and Suji. Fourth match of the night, Cal Newman, Francesco Akira, and TJP take on the Bull Club War Dogs team of David Finley, Gabe Kidd, and Ghetto. Fifth match of the night, we have the House of Tortures, Dick Togo, Evil, Ren Narita, and Kenamaru taking on just five guys, Doki, Sonata, Taichi, and Uemura. And then... Um, after that, we have New Japan Cup action first round matches. We have Toriano versus Yujiro Takahashi. My God. Seventh, ma- uh, seventh match of the night, Kenta versus Yoshihashi in the New Japan Cup. Eighth match of the night, Jack Perry, the scapegoat, versus Shota Umino in New Japan Cup action first round match. And then the main event, non-title action, Tetsuya Naito versus Sho, the IWGP World Heavyweight Champion versus the IWGP Junior Champion. And uh, Naito did say recently that if he loses this match, he will retire. <laughs> I, I don't think he's going re- to lose the match. Uh, Rambo and Slam Pig asked, lining up Naito versus Sho for the anniversary was a choice. Given the options for the long-awaited match with Hiromu, or what would most certainly be an excellent match with El Desperado, any thoughts on the logic here? And honestly, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess the only thing you could say is the fact that Sho is a heel and Naito's a babyface, and maybe maybe they have some sort of information about House of Torture and, and how fans domestically react to them that I'm not privy to, and maybe the, the grand maybe there's something they're setting up, but... uh. Fuck, I, I can't imagine. I don't want to see Naito and show. I just don't. Um, so, yeah, uh, this this is not my cup of tea when it comes to anniversary events. Yano and Yujiro, Kenta and Yoshihashi. Um, I mean, Jack Perry and Umino is somewhat compelling. I, I almost feel like I'm surprised they're doing that in Japan as opposed to saving that for Windy City Riot, but, but whatever. Um, yeah, and Naito and show, and then you know, again, we're getting House of Torture in the main event scene. Uh, even even if it's just for one night, like fuck, that sucks. Um, the New Japan Cup brackets were released. Um, so what we have here in the A bracket, and I'm just gonna go over it briefly. Sonata versus Yoshihashi, or I'm sorry, Sonata gets a a, a buy in the A block. Goto gets a buy in the B block. Evil gets a buy in the C block, and Zack gets a buy in the D block. Why? I don't know. But basically, um, your list of competitors in the A block, Sonata, Yoshihashi, Kenta, Umino, Jack Perry, Yano, and Yujiro. So one of them will be a finalist um, for the final four. 
Then uh, in the B quadrant, you have TJP, David Finley, Tangaloa, Great Okan, Tomohiro Ishii, Chase Owens, and Hiroki Goto. Uh, in the C block, you have Evil, Hikaleo, Bolton Oleg, Shingo Takagi, Yuya Uemura, Callum Newman, Gabe Kidd. And then in the final quadrant, you have Yotasuji, Jeff Cobb, El Phantasmo, Mikey Nichols, Taichi, Ren Narita, and Zack Sabre Jr., uh, and some questions here related to this. Lee Ching is Bay says, this is the most deflated I have ever felt looking at the New Japan Cup bracket. There was a time when you would see names like Ibushi, Jay, Juice, Omega, Osprey, Okada, Tanahashi, Suzuki in the tournament, and all those guys are, they're now gone. I guess it's finally hitting me that we're in a completely different era of New Japan Pro Wrestling, and I'm honestly questioning if I should keep up with the product at this point. Convince me otherwise. Why should I and other people who may feel the same Stay. All right, uh, guys, you probably you're asking the wrong person because I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> if you want to go, and I'm not saying this in a dickish way, I mean it sincerely. If you feel the need to stop watching, you should just stop watching. There, we are living in a time where we are blessed with a plethora of incredible professional wrestling. And I'm not just talking about, you know, AEW and WWE, even though there's great stuff there. I'm talking about, you know, in Mexico with CMLL and AAA and their indies. And then you look at what's going on with All Japan Pro Wrestling and then NOAA and Stardom and Tokyo Joshi Pro and all the different um, companies that are being shown on uh, Wrestle Universe and, and everything like that. And there's tons and tons and tons of wrestling products that are out there and i would say if you're feeling like you need to take a break take a break you're not running this podcast you don't have to watch all of this you know what you can do you can cherry pick what you would like to watch and maybe when it becomes more tolerable or palatable you jump back in and maybe for the time being you just cherry pick I'm not going to tell you to watch shit that you don't want to watch. I don't want to watch some of this sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you know, maybe maybe I'm the idiot that I'm um, so committed to covering this because I don't know where that threshold would be. I'm not. We're not thinking about ending the show or anything. But like, fuck. Like, if you're if you don't want to watch it, like, you really shouldn't. And you know, there there are some good things on this um, New Japan Cup, but I'm not going to pretend like this is an all-time tournament. It's not, you know? And I'm not going to pretend like those names that you listed are, are coming back through the door. They're not. We are in a, new, in a new era. And maybe it's not for you right now. And maybe things will turn around. But you shouldn't have to watch Yano and Yujiro to figure that out. <laughs> Navith says, do you see surprises with the New Japan Cup, or do you believe that there will be solid growth and evolution of wrestlers participating in it? And honestly, right now, I don't know. Uh, there, there's some good names. There's some okay matches. There's a lot of shit in here. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this is the real new beginning for the company, because the new beginning was the end <laughs> of eras, and it was not a new beginning. Um, so I'm hoping New Japan Cup can facilitate that. We can see guys grow. We can see stories progress. We can see stars made and see bangers. Like, you know, I, sometimes I think people forget. We watch this because 
the matches are supposed to be incredible. And they were in January, and they were for part of February, but the end of that tour, my God. Um, Zach Porter, Zachapo, he says, how quick do you think Chase will beat Ishii in the first round? Early predictions to win. I'm rooting for Sonata to repeat. This is a this is a this is a bitter man. Nobody wants to see Sonata repeat. This is someone that just wants to see the world burn. Um, yeah, <laughs> I actually don't know. I, I, my early predictions. I mean, I think uh, I think like David Finley losing his title could potentially mean he's uh, gonna win this tournament. Um, I also think I, I wouldn't be surprised if like David Finley and Zack Saber were in the finals, even though that's an all Gaijin final. With the way things are going right now, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if if we get at least those two in the final four. Um, Less Commission seven two five two says for my finals of the New Japan Cup, I have Shota Umino versus Yotsuji. It could be an easy decision on who's to win, but also a tough decision due to the buildup. If Suji wins, he has already built uh, up as facing Naito for the title, resulting with us getting an LIJ 101 title match. If Umino wins, it will be one of the biggest accomplishments, but could be a stepping stone and forgotten to build up the Naito-Moxley match for Windy City Riot. How could New Japan safely overshadow my theory and protect Umino if he ends up being the winner of the New Japan Cup? Um... Honestly, the way you do that is you have him win the tournament in incredible fashion in a way where he has blowaway matches that everyone is fucking behind. He starts being built up as a major star, a major face. Like, he should probably, I don't know what his trajectory in the tournament is. Let me look. Um, I'm wondering why, like, him and evil are on completely opposite sides of the bracket considering what happened <laughs> at the end of this tour. Um, but he should have beaten evil in this tournament, um, to get that win back. But, um, putting that aside, yeah, he should have incredible performances. He should beat everybody. And then when he faces Naito, if he does lose, it should be in a match of the year contender that the, that people are so far behind him that they're like, yeah, I want to see them run that back. So that's um that's where they need to go from that next. Bear with me just one second. And we're back. So uh, the next question I have here... Um, is Cashew's Life says, thoughts on the New Japan Cup bracket. What are some names you can see winning it? Really excited for the potential of ZSJ and Tai Chi's match. And do you think Taguchi's offense would be more effective if he had a BBL? Um, I would say no to the Taguchi question. Um, I Honestly, I haven't done a lot of deep digging into the New Japan Cup bracket. It just came out a few days ago and my days have been crazy. In fact, as you probably noticed, this episode is coming out a day late. Uh, so yeah, uh, been a little bit behind. And honestly, going back to those Sapporo shows, night one was so bad that it took me days to finally get around to watching night two because I really had trouble like stomaching what happened on the first night. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Um yeah, I see potential. I think we'll we'll do a bit more of a deep dive next week, but there's no doubt that we're very likely getting Tai Chi and Zack Saber. Um, so dangerous techers collide. 
uh, on March 15th. So that's, that's very exciting. So there are some good, there are some good things in the tournament, but there's also a lot of shit. That's just like, fuck, there's some really bad stuff in this tournament. So it's a mixed bag. Um, hopefully the right guy goes over whoever that might be. I don't know. Um, but let's jump into the news and, uh, close out this episode. So, um, we, there was a report that, um, that Minoru Suzuki might be wrapping up his um, time or severely limiting his dates with New Japan Pro Wrestling. He uh, put out a story saying that he was returning the moniker Strong Style back to New Japan Pro Wrestling, and um, him and Desperado have agreed to um, separate and kind of give up that faction. So um, it appears for the time being that Minoru Suzuki, even though he's always been a freelancer, he'll no longer be appearing regularly with New Japan Pro Wrestling uh, for the time being. So um, he continues to be extremely busy outside of the company and other um, avenues. So you can still see him wrestle, but I, I don't think he's going to be doing too much with uh, the company in the near future. Um, there was an announcement that Wrestling World will hit Taiwan April 14th. Um, New Japan is doing an event in Taiwan. Uh, this will be the first event under the APFW banner. This was the uh, Asian Pacific Alliance that they announced earlier this year. Um, and if the names that are on the uh, poster are an indication of who's on the show, this, again, this show takes place two days after Windy City Riot. So it would appear anybody that was on the banner is most likely not going to appear in Chicago, and those names were Tanahashi, Suji, Uemura, Sonata, Sho, Evil, Yo, Yoshihashi, Desperado, and Hiroki Goto. And uh, one does have to seriously question if that's in the best interest of the company when they're about to run their largest uh, U.S. show in years um, in Chicago. You know, and you've got guys like Suji and Uemura, for for instance most likely not appearing on that show. Um, whether that's a good idea or not, I, I, I would say no, personally. Um, they also announced that for Sakura Genesis, two matches were made official. So Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Nick Nemeth for the global title is official. And then the main event of that show will be Tetsuya Naito versus the New Japan Cup winner. Windy City Riot will be airing on NJPW World Pay-Per-View on April 12th in English. So um, I did see that this show was going to be um, airing. Uh, I don't know the. Ex- I think it's like one of TV Asai's affiliates. So they were saying that there's a very good chance that the quality of the show will be uh, pretty high uh, since it's going to be airing in Japan on television. So um, that's good news. Um, New Japan uh, announced this past week that they're entering into a relationship with CWE Costa Rica. Uh, this is a company that was founded in March of 2014. They work closely with CMLL in Mexico. And uh, we will now see New Japan names appearing in CWE rings in the future. So I guess they're working with Costa Rica. Um, Wrestling Observer, uh, Observer Newsletter broke the news earlier today that Tamatonga is on his way to WWE. I assume most likely he'll show up in NXT as a member of the Good Brothers stable. So that's probably what's next for him. Um, they did announce that Matt Riddle is set to defend the NJPW World Television title uh, this weekend at ML- MLW's New York City Return uh, Intimidation Game Show on February 29th. He'll be uh, defending against Bad Dude Tito. 
the NJPW Academy Showcase returns to the LA Dojo March 23rd. Um, April 7th in DDT, there will be a tag team match as Mao and Yuki Ueno uh, take on the team of Chris Brooks and Zack Sabre Jr. Zack Sabre Jr. recently appeared uh, on a DDT show to make the announcement. And then the last bit of news, um, Kazushiko Okada was interviewed by Tokyo Sports, and there was a quote over here in the States uh, basically that stated, I'm leaving New Japan with the intention of never returning. Um, I'm not going to dig into this too much. I've seen a lot of people's reactions and a lot of uh, uh, discussion points about it. My understanding essentially is that the sentiment and um, intention of the statement isn't necessarily what the aggregators are trying to make it sound like with the kind of like a, you know, catchy phrasing of it all. Um, what was relayed to me is that what he said in Japanese is more akin to like, I'm leaving new Japan with like the mindset as though I'm not going back, but it wasn't like a a commitment to like saying like, Oh, there's bad blood. Oh, I'm never going to work for them again. In fact, he probably very likely will, but uh, essentially he was discussing what his mindset is heading into the next venture of his career, which is, you know, very likely working for AEW. Um, so that's going to do it for the news. We've got a few questions here, and then we are going to get out of here. Um, Maserati asked, where's that Kenny guy? Uh, I don't know who you're talking about, sir. Um, so <laughs> maybe it's the person that stole the title for, you know, most of the year and never came back to Japan. I don't know. Um, Bungholio the Mighty says, if John Moxley wins the IWGP World Heavyweight title from Naito, should Toriano challenge Moxley for the belt? After all, Yano was the one who handed Mox his first loss at G1 Climax 29. <clears throat> Taking a, a brief sip there, I have to say no. Um, series of questions from Les Commission 7252. Uh, this is my idea for the best of the Super Juniors this year. I think this year's tournament should be a World Cup theme, a four-block format, with 10 wrestlers in each block, each block representing its own country, Japanese, American, Mexican, and British wrestlers. It would be an interesting concept that will allow new wrestlers over to bring new uh, wrestlers over to the Japanese fans who have never seen or heard of them. Um, I think, I think that's a cool sounding idea. I don't think it's realistic, but um, you know, um, what culture pro wrestling actually did something like that years ago. That was pretty interesting. He also asked, what's the possibility of John Moxley winning the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship at Windy City Riot if Naito passes through Sakura Genesis, still world champion? Riddle and Nemeth are both champions for the company. What's stopping Gato from putting the main belt from the company on another international star? And, you know, at this point, I would say, like, with, with those two white men holding the title, the idea that we wouldn't put it on this other white man would be discriminatory. I think we just need to probably give it to him at this point, just to, in the name of fairness. But uh, <laughs> I have seen, um, I've seen people on both sides of the argument, uh, very passionate about whether or not Moxley should be the next champion. And, you know, I've seen uh, the, the new Japan gatekeepers who talk about how he's not, he doesn't mean anything to the bottom line business of new Japan and Japan. 
So what, what would be the benefit of that versus Naito? And then I've seen other people who are just fed up with the current trajectory of the company and would like to see an admittedly big star like John Moxley win the title. And, you know, I could see it happening, to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I don't know whether that would be a bad or a good move, but at this point in time, like, the reality, and it's it's the... It's, it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Naito's on his last legs, guys. And and we're not saying that in a shambolic, like, like bad faith way. I mean, for real. This guy had three surgeries on his eye that apparently if he has to have another one, he will lose his eyesight and he can't ever have that surgery again. So there's that. And then there's his knees. And then there's all everything else with his body. Like, the guy's falling fucking apart and the idea that he alone by himself at this point in his and this stage of his career that he's supposed to just carry the company like i i get it i understand that people wanted him to have a top guy run all those years ago and instead okada had his lengthy title run and then the pandemic happened the second time and they're hoping that this is that time but we're not off to a good start between the matches being with Sonata and then show and then who God knows who the new Japan cup winner is going to be like, this is not screaming all time title reign. And I don't know how much longer his body is going to hold up. I wouldn't be surprised if John Moxley won the title. The only way it works for me though, is if John Moxley was allowed to not work in AEW and didn't have Tony Khan overseeing every facet of his, his booking and was allowed to actually kind of, for the time being, be a member of the New Japan roster until he dropped that title. But that's highly, I mean, that's just unrealistic. It's never going to happen. So uh, you you kind of have to put that, that caveat in there that, like, if you did put the title on him, he's probably not going to be around. And everything's going to be to the whim of Tony Khan's, you know, um, booking because they're the A-side in that relationship. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be good, honestly. Uh, Jacek2002 says, who is your favorite young lion ever just over their time as a young lion? So not counting their career post-excursion. Watto is my pick. And, and you know, Watto's a great pick. Um, for me, my favorite young lion was probably, have to say Ren Narita, most likely. Um, Sensitive Artist 69 says, who should be on the English commentary booth these days? And I would say the guys they have on the booth because they're doing a fantastic job and they're getting better every single day. And I, I thought Walker and, and Chris are really starting to gel, especially on this last uh, these last couple shows. Uh, Death Triangle 720 has a series of questions. He says, with the amount of people injured in the company, should New Japan ask for some talent from other promotions? And my answer is maybe. <laughs> um he says, do you think Tana may be too nice to not really push for any changes in the company? And my answer is, I couldn't speak to that because I don't know what Tanahashi's like in real life. I don't know what, what, how much stroke he has. I don't know what the inner workings of their business is. So I, I couldn't say. Uh, he also says, if Gato and whoever else is in the booking committee, who should be the replacement? And we've gotten this question a lot, and I don't know. I don't know who's a good booker. Uh, in Japan, I, I could not tell you. Um, I wish we were a little bit more insidery and, and a little bit more plugged in and can tell you what's going on from that aspect with the company, but uh, I 
I'd be lying if I told you I'd, I had an idea. I don't. Um, he also asked, does it seem like New Japan don't know if they want to be an international company or just the top promotion in Japan? And I would say no. They, they definitely want to be an international company, but how they're an international company is a totally different matter because they're starting to um, expand more into Asia and Oceania areas of, of the world, which is probably a smart idea. And in comparison, I think for a lot of the Western fan base, they feel somewhat probably neglected, although this company has catered to them for many, many years. So um, it, it's a tough it's a tough uh, balancing act to stay the top promotion in Japan, but also appeal to an international audience and, and grow, especially with the way that the the current um, wrestling landscape is with the two giants in AEW and WWE. Uh, it, it's kind of cut their legs out from underneath them in that respect. So um, he said, what are your thoughts on the current champions in the company? And my, my current thoughts would be, this is probably the weakest lineup of champions we've had in many 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 years and hopefully it's short-lived because uh, right now it's not looking great uh which of the young talents in the company would you put your stock towards um i would say the same guys we, we were always talking about that we're big fans of you know suji yamura umino uh gabe kid you know um from your point of view do you think we expect the young guys to be ready immediately with so many guys leaving. And, you know, I don't want to dive too deep into this one, but New Japan really does need to probably take a look at what's going on with All Japan and DDT and Dragon Gate and Stardom and see how they're prepping their stars and getting them ready and producing them in a much quicker fashion than New Japan currently is with the way that they do the Young Lion system. Uh last year or maybe the year prior they had talked about expediting this process but there there seems to be a disconnect between the old school style of taking five years to build a lion and send him on excursion and then bring him back and and giving him those five years of experience before you're ever ready to really debut him versus like looking at like how all japan has done with yuma and zai like it doesn't have to be that extreme, but there needs to be some sort of happy medium because we're not in a space where we can fuck around and put all of our stock in guys who don't pay off in the long run, like a show or a yo or an evil or, you know what I mean? Um, we just don't have that luxury anymore. The, the wrestling landscape has changed and management has to figure that out. Um, he also asked his last question, if you could pick the person to retire president Tana in the ring, who would you pick? Oh, uh, that's a tough question. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a great question, but I, I'm just not sure. Um, last couple questions and we'll be done. Roasted cat 23 says, can wrestling be unpredictable and exciting without periodically resorting to nonsense booking? Uh, the context, it should be possible to book in a way that is both unpredictable, but also logical. I do appreciate logical booking, but successfully predicting every match in a card in advance is dull. 
the February 23rd show was the opposite of that. It sparked some extremely morbid excitement from all the truly head-scratching outcomes. I'll be less likely to feel meh. I already know with what's going to happen during future shows because I don't trust ghetto, LMAO. You know, I, I do think that you bring up a good point. Sometimes when they present something that you're not expecting, it, it keeps you on your toes, but it also shouldn't be to the detriment of the fandom, to entertainment, to tickets being sold, to eyes tuning in. You know, you don't like there is a thing, a such thing as go away heat. We got people asking us on the show whether asking me to convince them to keep watching. <laughs> So I don't think that's good. And, and yes, it, it is possible to have unpredictable and exciting booking without having nonsense. You know, um, plenty of amazing bookers. Ghetto did it for years. So uh, Rambo and Slam Pig says, I feel like I have asked this already recently, but it needs to be asked again after this weekend. Is Ghetto cooked? Or do you think factors beyond his control, such as corporate meddling and economic issues, are to blame for recent tru uh, troubling trends? And the truth is, I, I don't know. Um, I'm leaning towards yes on all of that because I, I, again, I'm not privy to what's going on behind the scenes, but something's not right. Shit is not right. Like the inability for, um, management to have anticipated the loss of all these stars to have read the stars and read the tea leaves and figured out what the fuck was going on. And, um, even if they just had an inkling that some of these guys might be on their way out to have prepped and timetabled and figured all this out is perplexing. And yeah, something's not right. And his final question will be done. He says, New Japan are going to be relying on Naito's star power to sell tickets in the near future, which makes me believe he is in for a long title reign as long as his body holds up. Who would you like to see challenge him for the title against Naito this year? And I agree. I, I do think that he is their biggest star that they have currently. They can't rely on Tanahashi again, and they're not going to put that title on Hiromu, and all the other stars are pretty much gone. So, um, you know, they're, they're, I do think that there are great matches out there for him. Um, the ones that I would like to see challenge, and... I guess we're just going with me. This is going to be me personally. I'd like to see Ishii challenge. I'd like to see Zack Sabre Jr. challenge. I would like to see Taichi get a challenge, especially with the matches him and um, Naito have had in the past. Um, you know, the, the, the usual sus suspects, uh, Uemura, Gabe Kidd, Umino, um, Suji. And then there's some there's other names too ELP Jeff Cobb Shingo Takagi <laughs> you know there are people that have not been utilized to their fullest extent and I'm hoping that some of that gets rectified um, if he even just faced a couple of those guys that that would probably go a long way to improving this uh this title reign also Hiromu's out there so there's that. Um, that is going to do it. Thank you guys so much for all the questions. This, this was a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, it's not easy to do one of these uh, solo shows all by yourself. But um, we got through it together. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. 
Um, I will be back here next week and we will be discussing um, and previewing the 52nd anniversary event. We'll also be previewing the entirety of the New Japan Cup, both myself, um, Jeremy Donovan as he makes his return, and Chris Samsa of SportofProWrestling.com. Also, wanted to make mention, um, along with the uh, New Japan Cup bracket, the Sport of Pro Wrestling New Japan Cup 2024 bracket challenge is open if you just Google that. Um, you'll find the link and Chris has, uh, basically fillable brackets that you can fill out. There's going to be prizes. So, um, basically that's one thing. Lee Chang is Bay. If you're still listening, uh, if you want to know one thing that might, uh, up your anticipation, participating in tournaments and, and, um, contests like that are always a great way to kind of boost your, uh, morale. But uh, Chris will be with us next week, and we will be discussing all of that and previewing the tournament. Uh, make sure to connect with us on social media. On uh, Twitter, follow us at uh, KI Strong Style, at Social Suplex, and at Jeremy L. Donovan. On Facebook, we have the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. Um, you can also follow us at Facebook.com slash Social Suplex. On Reddit, Jeremy is the Pro Black Guy. I am keeping it strong style. Join us uh, on our social suplex discord server to interact with us and other wrestling fans. And you can email Jeremy at Jeremy at social suplex.com. Check out all of our other shows on the social suplex podcasting network. One nation radio, all things elite imps, WWE adventure wrestling art with Chris things, tunnel talk and the Trish and Sarah wrestling podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and we'll catch you next week on keeping it strong style. The Ace of Podcasts, Ichiban. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.